Opinions expressed on ACB Radio are those of the respective program contributors and do not necessarily reflect views held by the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Good afternoon, everybody. I'm Bill Jones, along with Marge Snyder, and we're bringing you the 2020 GCB, Georgia Council of the Blind, convention, and this time virtually. And welcome to all of you who are listening across the state of Georgia and across the country. Our tour is coming up this hour, don't we? We do, Phil, and a lot more this evening. We'll be starting quite uh, soon here with a tour of Zoo Atlanta, your chance to uh, vicariously learn about uh, all the animals that uh, that are there and... Um, that should be a really interesting experience. I've never been to the zoo myself, and I'm really looking forward to that. Next at 4.30, we will be taking a bit of a side trip to Montana to the Grizzly and Wolf Discovery Center, another uh, virtual tour of uh, that center where people get up close and personal, maybe not that personal, but somewhat personal, with the grizzlies and the wolves out there in Montana. At around 5 p.m., we will be sharing with you interviews with longtime GCB members, Jack Lewis and Fred McDade, as well as a youngster, a member of Georgia Council of the Blind, Timothy Jones and his mother, Nancy Jones. These are all people that you should get to know better, and this will be your opportunity to hear from them. At 6 p.m. through nearly the 7 o'clock hour will be a GCB roll call. Members of our chapters, usually the chapter presidents, will be speaking about uh, their group, where they meet, what they do. Uh, So you'll hear from representatives all around the state of Georgia and hear as well from our special interest affiliate, Georgia Guide Dog Users. We'll be rounding out that hour with some music from Timothy Jones um, that we'll be sharing with you via recording. Then at 7 o'clock will be our Georgia Council of the Blind Convention Banquet, uh, an an experience not to be missed for sure. And uh, that will be introduced um, first by Phil and myself and uh, they'll be uh, the start of our door prize giveaways at that time. Uh, Alice Richhart will take over. You'll hear from um, others, including our banquet speaker, uh, Jeff Stumpf. We have awards this evening for you, so a very busy banquet schedule plan. And then uh, later on, after our banquet ends at 9 p.m. at 9.30, Uh, will be a convention nightcap uh, for those who will be uh, dialing in through the uh, GCB Zoom account. So that won't be streamed. But I just want to give you a little bit of flavor of uh, our first day of our Georgia Council of the Blind convention. So let's begin with a tour of Zoo Atlanta. Hey guys, welcome to Zoo to You Vertebrates Edition. Today we are talking about amphibians. But before we do, let's chat just a second about what makes a vertebrate. 
So a vertebrate is an animal that has a spine or a backbone. So if you put your hand on the middle of your back and lean forward a little bit until you can feel some lumps and bumps running up and down the center, those are your vertebra or the bones that make up your backbone. Now, just like you and I have that backbone, Tony here also has that backbone. Now, Tony is part of one of the five classes of vertebrates, and he specifically is an amphibian, with the other classes being mammals, birds, reptiles, and fish. Now, amphibians are unique for a couple of different reasons. Like our reptiles and our fish, they're cold-blooded. So he relies on his environment to tell his body what temperature it's gonna be, unlike you and I where our body temperature would remain constant. He's gonna need different areas in his environment to be hotter or cooler so that he can warm himself up or cool himself down based on what his body is saying it needs at the time. He is also gonna lay eggs like birds and reptiles and fish. But where birds' eggs are nice and hard, and reptiles' eggs are leathery, amphibian eggs are gonna resemble a fish's eggs a little more closely than the other two in that they're gonna be a little bit jelly-like in texture. Now, where amphibians are truly unique from many of the other classes of vertebrates is in their growth cycle. So amphibians lay eggs and then for frogs, and for many salamanders, they are gonna hatch in a larval state. And if it is a frog, it's gonna be something that we'll call a tadpole, which resembles almost a small fish underwater. There are no arms and legs, and you can clearly see here that Tony definitely has arms and legs. So what happens? Well, amphibians go through something called metamorphosis. So they change over the course of their lifetime between their infancy or their larval state and their adulthood. And for salamanders and frogs, that's going to mean growing the arms and legs that will eventually allow them to come out of the water. So they are gonna hatch in their eggs, they're gonna spend their larval stages completely underwater, breathing underwater, eating underwater, and as they grow, those limbs are gonna grow in, they're going to develop lungs, and they will eventually exit the water for part of their lifetime, but they're always gonna stay pretty close because one of the other features that amphibians have is moist, permeable skin. Now moist just means that it needs to stay a little bit wet in order for these guys to be nice and healthy. But permeable is where these guys really stand out. Having that permeable skin means that amphibians can absorb air and water through their skin. You and I have to use our noses to breathe, we have to use our mouths to drink, but Tony doesn't. He can take those things in right through his skin. Now that makes these guys play a really important role in their ecosystem as something called indicator species. Now common indicators you and I should know really well are things like a clock or a watch. That's going to indicate what time it is. It's going to tell me the time. Another thing you might be familiar with is a thermometer. Maybe you've had your temperature taken at the doctor or you've looked at the temperature to decide what to wear in the morning. Thermometers are indicators of temperature. They tell us what temperature it is. These guys indicate for scientists the health of the overall ecosystem.
Now, one of the things that we can look for because of that permeable skin is looking at things like air and water pollution. Because if that water or that air is dirty or unclean, it starts to make these guys sick, which means they need to not stay in that environment. So one of the things that scientists might look at if they go to an ecosystem that should have amphibians in it, and they're either struggling population-wise or they're not there anymore, is they can take a look at the air and the water quality. That's all we've got for you guys today on zoo to you vertebrates edition, specifically taking a look at amphibians. Thank you so much for joining us. And if you are looking for any more at-home learning resources, check out our learn page at zooatlanta.org and stay connected with us on social media using hashtag OnlyZooATL. Atlanta and today we have a zoo to you invertebrates edition so I've got Miss Sparkle Muffin here she is one of our resident invertebrates and that means that she does not have a backbone inside her body Sparkle Muffin actually carries her skeleton on the outside she's got an exoskeleton it's a hard shell that holds her body shape and protects her in her environment now, Sparkle Muffin is a Chilean rose-haired tarantula, so she is an arachnid. That means she's got eight legs. She's gonna breathe with something sometimes called book lungs. And she's got this lovely set of spinnerets, which she's gonna show off for you right now. Those spinnerets she's gonna use to build her web. One of the roles that invertebrates often play in their ecosystem, especially if you're looking at an insect or an arachnid, is that they are kind of like nature's pest control. So they help make sure that other insects, and in Sparkle Muffin's case, could be frogs or mice as well, don't get to be too high such that they're causing damage in their ecosystem by there being too many of them. Now she's also got these lovely hairs. So a lot of tarantulas look like they're furry and those hairs serve different purposes. Some of them are helping her sense what's going on in her environment. Some of them are gonna help her cling on as well as her little toe hooks that are gonna help her cling to her surfaces. And then some of them she can actually use to defend herself by flicking them off of her body if an animal gets a little too nosy and those hairs will irritate that animal and hopefully make them go away so that Miss Sparkle Muffin doesn't become prey herself. That's it for today, guys. Thank you so much for tuning in to Zoo to You Invertebrates Edition. Please, if you are looking for any more at-home resources, check out our learn page at zooalana.org and stay connected with us on social media using hashtag OnlyZooATL. at night 
Now you can see him using that beak, which is adapted to catch food, things like snakes, lizards, he can even pound into tortoise shells. Oh, I dropped it, Abby. Let's see if you can show off your flying abilities. We're gonna go straight this direction. Oh, we gotta get that chicken down first. There he goes. Nicely done, Abby, and all the way back down here whenever you're ready, sir. Nicely done. All right, can you sit? What a handsome bird. Good job, Abby. Now, these guys, like I mentioned, that beak is well designed to work to get food, like snakes, lizards, even vegetation. But they also have a near immunity to snake venom, which is really cool. That keeps them nice and safe. Hey, Abby, why don't you go take a peek at our visitors over there? Nice job, bird. You can get a nice close look at those gorgeous eyelashes. And there's Abby forging for rocks. He does that very well. Now, he's doing a behavior that we call parading, where he'll pick up an item that he thinks is precious and show it around. They will do that with their significant others in the wild, where they actually do um, spend years and years together in the same mated pair. Hey, Abby, you wanna come down here one more time? You got, there's lots of rocks up there. I know, this is a pretty fun game. Now, when Abby does this, <laughs> you guys might wonder why I'm not going and getting Abby or calling his name over and over again. This is a part of our training program here at New Atlanta. So when Abby's ready, I'll call him back down to the stage. But as long as he's playing, I'm gonna let him play. It's totally up to him what he wants to do with this time. Abby, are you ready? All the way down here. Good job, buddy. Nicely done, thank you for coming back. But his time is his to enjoy. And as you notice, there is no wires or nets keeping these birds here in the theater. It's entirely our positive reinforcement training. Now I mentioned that beak, I'll mention it again. It's also useful for getting into tortoise shells. Extremely hard beak, really good use of getting food that way. Now he also has that beautiful colored pouch under his chin, that throat pouch there. That's gonna help him produce sound. In fact, he'll duet with his partner, the male singing half the song, the female singing another half of the song. Abby, you wanna show off those wings again? How about you go up that way? Nice job, sir, and all the way back down here. Nicely done, very nice job. Now, that throat pouch also you'll see is blue and red. That lets us know that Abby is a boy. The female northern ground hornbills only have a single color on their throat pouch, just a blue color. And their southern ground hornbill friends are opposite, with males having one color and females having two. All right, Abby, you've done a great job. Your attention span isn't always the greatest, so we're gonna feed you a couple of last little bits here. Abby today is getting Mises pieces with an M. We're gonna let him head off stage in just a moment. Couple more pieces, sir. One more right there. Very dexterous with that beak. Very nice job, and we'll see you later, Abby, our Abyssinian ground hornbill. Welcome to the petting zoo. Come on in. We have brushes right over here to my right, or you can just pet them with your hands. They're all super friendly and love the attention. Let's go meet some of them. Right here we have two of our babies. This is Theodore and this is Alvin. They both actually have birthdays coming up and they'll turn a year old. You wanna learn some more fun stuff about goats? Yeah. Follow me over here. Remember, when we're in the petting zoo, we don't want to hand feed the goats because then they'll associate food with hands and we want to make sure that they're practicing good manners. 
So right over here, we have some really cool facts about all of our goats and our sheep. We do have four different breeds of goat in here and two different breeds of sheep. So did you know that goats have four stomachs? Yes, so they're called ruminants. Goats and sheep are ruminants. So that's how they process and digest their food, whereas we only have one. And then some other cool facts about our animals, they have rectangular pupils. Do you know why they might have that? No. It's because it's an adaptation for these guys as a prey species, high Wembley. So those horizontal pupils actually allow for them to see 320 degrees almost all the way around behind them. Gives them the slightest heads up if a predator is coming from behind. This is Wembley, like I mentioned, he's one of our largest goats. So he's called a Sonnen goat. Sonnens are from Switzerland. He weighs roughly 175 pounds right now. Let's go check out what they're doing at the hay feeder. Hi guys. So here we have Benson, Phineas, and Franklin, and they're enjoying their breakfast. So this right here is the primary base of their diet. It's Bermuda hay. So here at Zoo Atlanta, they'll get Bermuda hay, they'll get some different types of browse, which is just branches and leaves that they're able to munch on. And then we also use uh, grain as part of their diet and as part of their training positive reinforcement. So it's a very nice sweet treat. Well, anyway, thanks for hanging out and letting me talk about the, the goats and sheep that we have here. And I'll let you kind of roam around and meet the rest of them. Enjoy. is Steve. Oh my goodness. Is he a mini goat or a baby goat? He is a baby. So he just had a birthday and he just turned a year old. Oh my goodness. Happy birthday. Oh, hello. Are these, look at these big goats. These are pretty big too. They're the same kids that we talked about earlier. They're going to grow to be almost the same size as Wembley. What? Is this a goat too? Nope. That's a sheep. So that's Olaf. He's a Gulf Coast native sheep. He feels weird. Yeah, that's because they have wool. Unlike goats who have the hair that you feel, sheep have wool. And these guys are actually gonna get sheared here in the next couple weeks. So huh. we'll shear our sheep once a year, normally in the spring before it gets too hot. That's awesome. These guys are really cool. Is there a way that I can help these goats right now? Yeah, so currently with the COVID-19 pandemic, we are not open to guests which means that we don't have a lot of income coming in to make sure that all of our animals are taken care of here at the zoo. We still have staff on grounds to make sure that their well-being is 100% taken care of and that they're still getting all of the attention and the uh, things that they need. And yeah. so if you would like to help these guys, uh, please go to the Zoo Atlanta website and we do have an entire page dedicated to donations and what you can do to help during this coronavirus crisis. That's awesome. I'll definitely try to help and tell others to help as well. Well, cool. Enjoy the rest of your day here at the zoo. Thanks, I will. Welcome to ZDU Vertebrates Edition. We are here in our Georgia Extremes building visiting some fish today. But before we get too far into what makes fish unique, let's talk about what it means that fish are vertebrates. So a vertebrate is any animal that has a backbone or a spine. So if you put your hand in the middle of 
your back and lean forward a little bit until you feel some lumps and bumps running up and down the center of your back. Those are your vertebrae or the bones that make up your spine. Fish also have a spine or a backbone. But fish are a little unique and different from us in a couple of different ways. First of all, you and I are gonna breathe with lungs, but fish have something called gills. And those gills can open up or close, and that allows oxygen to pass into their system. They are also covered in scales, and they will have those scales their entire life. Fish are also going to have fins, unlike you and I, where we've got hands and fingers and toes. Fish are gonna use their fins to help propel them through the water. They've got tail fins, dorsal fins, and a myriad of other kinds, depending on what sort of fish you're looking at. Now, a true fish is probably going to lay eggs. So those eggs are gonna be gel-like, unlike a bird's egg, which is nice and hard, or a reptile egg, which is gonna be leathery. Fish eggs are gonna be almost like jello, is what they would sort of look and feel like. They're gonna lay them in the water, the fish will hatch in the water, and then they will spend their entire lives living underwater. Fish are also going to be cold-blooded. So you and I, our body temperature, we're warm-blooded creatures, so our body temperature should stay the same. But cold-blooded creatures, such as fish, use their environment to either heat up or cool down their body. If they get too hot or too cold, they know that they need to move and find another place to be so that they can balance their body temperature back out so that it stays at a healthy level. Thank you guys so much for joining us with Zoo to You today. That's all we've got as far as fish goes. But if you are looking for more at-home learning resources, please feel free to check out the Learn page at zooatlanta.org or stay connected with us on social media using the hashtag OnlyZooATL. Welcome to today's edition of Zoo to You, Vertebrate Edition. We're going to be talking about mammals today. Now, a vertebrate is an animal that has a spinal cord or a backbone. And a mammal is what we've got right over here. Today, we've got our giant otters here. And they are, as I said, mammals. Now, some of the characteristics that make mammals a mammal are going to be their fur. Now, you see them kind of rolling around scratching themselves a little bit. They do have fur, so fur or hair is a characteristic. One of the other characteristics of mammals is that they give live birth, and when the babies are young, they have milk for them, unlike some of our reptiles or our amphibians, they don't give them milk. Other than that, they are also endothermic. Now, endotherm means that they are warm-blooded animals. They can regulate their body temperature just like you or I can. So as a recap, a mammal has fur, has live birth, has milk, and it is also an endotherm, so it has warm blood. Thanks for joining us for this edition of Zoo to You.
Colleen with Zoo Atlanta. Welcome to Zoo to You, Keystone Species Edition. So today we're going to be looking at keystone species and kind of learning why they're so important to their ecosystem. So what is a keystone species? Well, keystone species is a species where other species in its ecosystem depend on. So if this species were to be removed or maybe go extinct, many other species would feel that impact. So today we've got Thor, our gopher tortoise with us. He is a native Georgia keystone species. He is also one of the species that we have here at Zoo Atlanta. Now Thor, as we said, is a gopher tortoise. If you look at his front feet there, they're kind of shaped like shovels. He uses those to dig burrows and those burrows are one of the main reasons that gopher tortoises are a keystone species. Now these burrows can go 52 feet long and 23 feet deep. This is a huge expanse. And in those burrows, they're not just straight lines. They have different areas for them to go into and different alcoves. So much so that almost 350 species use them as well as gopher tortoises. Now Thor here is one of our native residents now in Georgia. They're going to live in the coastal plains region where you've got the sandy soil and those pine, pine trees and the wiregrass ecosystems. He really likes that sandy soil to dig in. It's much easier for him. In the wild they can live up to about 80 years and in captivity, like at Zoo Atlanta, he could live up to 100 years old. So that is a keystone species that you could find right here in Georgia. Thanks for joining us for this edition of Zoo to You. You can find more information on our website at zooatlanta.org under the Learn homepage for more at-home resources. And you can join us on any social media with the hashtag OnlyZooATL. All right, Phil, are you still with us here? Absolutely, and I'm telling yes. you. Yes. What do you think? It's great. It's a, it was fantastic. The tour has been, and uh, it was really something that, uh, you know, I, I used to remember this Grant Park Zoo, and uh, <clears throat> I haven't been there in a long time, but this is really interesting. It's gotten a lot better and before we get into the next tour, Marge, I think we do need to mention the fact that we are broadcasting over ACB Radio's special event. And I want to take this opportunity to thank the people at ACB Radio for making it possible for us to do this. This is, uh, this is uh, our first virtual convention, and uh, we certainly hope that there are people who are joining us all across Georgia and and uh, from out of state, I understand that there are a number of people from out of state. And uh, I certainly hope that uh, you like what you hear. And uh, we do have a lot of great stuff coming up for uh, you this evening, as you heard at the beginning. And we will also be letting you know at the end of the day what we have coming up for tomorrow. So just be prepared for all of that. This is going to be fantastic. And uh Marge, what do you say we get on with that next tour? 
Well, and yes, I think we will. But I just want to mention here, we, we have another thank you to give. Our thank you is to uh, our GCB president, Alice Richard, because uh, she's the one who is responsible for us uh, having our, our next tour, our little side trip to Montana to the Grizzly and Wolf Discovery Center, because Alice visited there on her trip to Yellowstone just a few months back and uh, enjoyed that audio tour and uh, thought it would be a great addition to our GCB convention. And so she uh, worked on uh, getting us connected with the center and uh, getting us permission to, to use this audio tour that they have. So we're certainly thankful not only to that center to uh, for the work that it does with uh, grizzlies and wolves and other animals there, but uh, thanks go to, to Alice as well for bringing us that tour. Out of doubt, I'm glad we're going to be taking this tour. This is going to be something new for me, so let's go into it right now. Powered by Onsell. Welcome back to the tour. Enter your stop number now or press star zero to leave us your feedback. Welcome to the Grizzly and Wolf Discovery Center. We are a not-for-profit wildlife park and educational facility. Our mission is to give visitors like you the opportunity to observe, understand, and appreciate grizzly bears and gray wolves, and to learn about their roles in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. At the center, there are several grizzly bears, different groups of gray wolves, and during the summer months, a variety of birds of prey, as well as Uinta ground squirrels. None of these animals are able to survive in the wild and now serve as ambassadors for their wild counterparts. As you begin the tour, follow the signs to learn more about the bears, wolves, and birds. If at any time you have a question that the tour doesn't answer, feel free to ask one of our naturalists in the animal viewing areas. Enter your stop number now or press star zero to leave us your feedback. There are several grizzly bears here at the center. All of the bears here had to be removed from the wild due to some kind of conflict with people, and they will never be able to go back out into the wild again. Many of the bears had become food conditioned or were orphaned as cubs or often a combination of the two. A food conditioned bear is a bear that is accustomed to getting food from human sources. The saying a fed bear is a dead bear is certainly true as these bears may have been euthanized had there not been space for them here at the center. Do your part and make sure bears cannot get food from you, whether directly or indirectly. Bears are not only attracted to garbage, bird seed, and pet food, but also anything that smells new and different, like shaving cream and gas canisters. Bears can smell up to 18 miles away. Staying safe in bear country and making sure bears can't get food from people is key to both bear and human safety. Enter your stop number now or call us back when you're ready. Grant and Roosevelt were placed here in September of 2011 after they were orphaned at the age of eight months. Their mother was euthanized by Yellowstone Park Services due to human safety concerns in Yellowstone National Park. Named after important figures in the early development of the world's first national park, Grant and Roosevelt look quite different from another, possibly because they have two different fathers. Grant is darker and smaller than his brother Roosevelt, 
These two bears have adapted well to captivity and may be seen playing with each other or quorum. Full of energy, these two rarely relax in the habitat and are constantly on the move. Enter your stop number now or call us back when you're ready. Nikita, born in 1998, is from interior Alaska near Denali National Park. She arrived at the center when she was about six months old after she was orphaned when both her mother and brother were shot and killed for preying on free-range chickens in Delta Junction, Alaska. Nikina may be seen stretching her legs. It sometimes looks like she's even doing yoga. Nikina is very good at catching fish and has even caught a raven before. She is named after the Nikina River in British Columbia, Canada. Enter your stop number now or call us back when you're ready. Born in 1996, Sam is a coastal Alaskan grizzly. Orphaned as a cub, Sam found his way to a fishing village where people left food out for him and eventually progressed to hand-feeding him. Because of the dangers this posed to people, Sam had to be removed from the wild. He arrived at the center when he was about six months old. At 1,098 pounds, Sam is the biggest bear at the center and is about twice the size of any grizzly you would find here in Montana. When he stands up, he is nine feet tall. He has a long snout and beautiful golden-tipped ears. While they are the same species as Montana grizzlies, all the fat and protein that coastal bears get from fish means a much bigger bear. Sam was named after the town of King Salmon near his birthplace. Enter your stop number now or call us back when you're ready. Born in 1996, Spirit is from northwestern Montana near Glacier National Park. She became comfortable around humans while frequenting a hiking trail to forage for huckleberries. After six unsuccessful relocation efforts, Spirit was removed from the town of Whitefish, Montana and placed at the center when she was six years old. Relocating grizzly bears is a tough job as bears have incredible memories. People bang pots and pans, shoot rubber bullets and cracker shot, and try to make the experience as unpleasant as possible for the bears in hopes they will not return to human areas. The Wind River Bear Institute also uses Carilion Bear Dogs, a breed originally from Northern Europe, to aid in this aversive conditioning by barking at and chasing the bears with her human partners. Enter your stop number now or call us back when you're ready. Corum was born in 2008 near Glacier National Park. Learning from their mother, Coram and his sister became very comfortable in human areas and proceeded to take food in bolder and bolder ways. While all three were re relocated, Coram continued to return to populated areas in search of easy food. 
Developing a taste for dog food, Corum progressed to stealing loaves of bread out of a pickup truck. Wildlife officials who trapped and relocated Corum said he was very mellow in the traps and that habituation to people combined with his food conditioning made him a human safety concern. And he was placed at the center in 2011. Corum sustained an eye injury during his time in the wild and it is believed he is blind in his left eye. Enter your stop number now or press star zero to leave us your feedback. There are several things you can do to help keep yourself safe in bear country. First, before you go on any hike, ask a ranger if the area you're going to is frequented by bears. If it is, save that hike for another day. Some areas and trails in the park may actually be closed at certain times of the year because of wildlife activity. Second, when hiking, travel with a group of three or more people. There have been zero recorded grizzly bear attacks on groups of five or more hikers. So bigger groups make a difference. Make sure to carry on a continuous conversation or even sing songs. Humans are the only creatures in Yellowstone who do that. Because we are unique in that way, wild bears may move away before you even know they are there. There is no evidence that bear bells are an effective way to warn off bears. The sound is not loud or unique enough. Third, watch out for signs of bear activity, such as fresh scat or prints. If you see such signs, consider turning around and being more vigilant about being heard as a way to warn any bears in the area of your presence. Finally, in the event that you encounter a bear, bear spray is the most important thing to have with you. Having bear spray is like wearing a seatbelt. You hope you never have to use it, but it's very important if needed. However, you also wouldn't drive off a cliff just because you are wearing a seatbelt. Carrying bear spray does not mean you should go actively looking for a bear. Remember, visitors to Yellowstone National Park must stay 100 yards away from bears and wolves and 25 yards away from all other wildlife. While these are not absolute safety measures, following these tips will help lessen your chance of encountering a bear in the wild. This is the best thing possible for both you and wild Yellowstone bears. Enter your stop number now or press star zero to leave us your feedback. If you plan on doing any recreating in or around Yellowstone National Park, it is extremely important to carry bear pepper spray. Make sure it has an EPA registration number and that it is bear spray, not mace or human defense spray. Carry the bear spray on your hip or chest in a holster. If you need to use it, you want to be able to access it quickly and easily. 
And remember, bear spray is not bug spray. Do not spray it on yourself or other people. Bear spray is made of highly concentrated hot peppers, strong enough to stop a charging bear. Also, if you are camping, do not spray it around your tent. Rather than deter bears, the smell may actually attract them, as they are very curious animals. To avoid surprising a bear, you should hike in large groups of at least three or four people and make lots of noise. If you end up in an encounter, reach for your bear spray and remove the cap so you are prepared for a charge. If the bear charges you, spray a burst toward them when they are about 25 to 30 feet away. The spray comes out in a cloud, like hairspray, so you don't have to have good aim. If the bear continues charging, release another spray into its face. The pepper will make it difficult for the animal to breathe and will irritate its eyes and nose, giving you time to get away. Be prepared, be aware, and don't forget to have fun. Bear spray may be purchased in our gift shop, and we also accept unused spray cans for recycling. Enter your stop number now or press star zero to leave us your feedback. Welcome to the Grizzly and Wolf Discovery Center's aviary. All of the birds here at the center are unable to survive in the wild. We will start with the bald eagles, Jordan, Zach, and Josh. Due to various injuries sustained in the wild, Jordan, Josh, and Zach cannot fly well enough to hunt. This makes them each unable to survive in the wild. Both Josh and Zach have wing injuries, and Jordan has impaired neurological functioning due to lead poisoning. Jordan, the female, is slightly larger than both Josh and Zach. Next are two great horned owls, Stretch and Quark. Great horned owls are very well disguised in the forest, so make sure you take some extra time to find them in their habitat. Both Quark, the more reddish one, and Stretch have eye injuries that prevent them from being able to survive in the wild. Great horned owls do not have actual horns, Rather, they have feathers that help them to further blend in with their surroundings. Moving on to Keek and Lewis. Keek is a rough-legged hawk. Rough-legged hawks have feathers all the way down their legs and feet. They also have smaller beaks and feet than most hawks, all of which makes them well adapted to live in cold climates. A rough-legged hawk might winter here in Montana and summer in the Arctic Circle. Keek is unable to survive in the wild due to an unknown injury to her wing. Lewis, the turkey vulture, has an injured wing and cannot fly well enough to survive in the wild. Turkey vultures have excellent senses of smell that enables them to sniff out rotting carcasses to eat. Next is Aquila, the golden eagle. Aquila is actually what is known as a lua bird. 
Over the 26-year span of her life, she has been used to trap hundreds of birds for banding and monitoring. With her wings fully extended, she has a wingspan of close to seven feet and she weighs about 12 pounds. Golden eagles have a powerful grip and their feet are strong enough to break a human femur. Finally, Jago, the peregrine falcon. Male falcons are sometimes referred to as tearsoles, meaning one-third. This is because male raptors are typically one-third smaller than the females. In the wild, peregrine falcons nest in cliffs for protection, but they are also very adaptable for city living, making their homes in nooks of buildings and bridges. Jago is a peregrine falcon tearsole hatched in captivity, originally bred for falconry or the sport of kings. Although he is a flighted bird, he is unable to survive in the wild. Enter your stop number now or press star zero to leave us your feedback. Make sure to look up while you're visiting Yellowstone National Park. Yellowstone is home to a variety of raptors or birds of prey. And you may be able to see several different species, including bald and golden eagles, red-tailed hawks, osprey, and many more. Bald eagles, osprey, and peregrine falcons are monitored within the park and the first two may be seen close to water. Mature bald eagles are easily identified by their white heads. There are believed to be 33 breeding pairs of bald eagles in the park and 18 breeding pairs of golden eagles. Ospreys have a distinctive light to dark coloring on the underside of their wings, and there are approximately 70 of them in the park. Peregrine falcons can be harder to spot. They like to nest along ledges and high cliffs. Bring your binoculars. Enter your stop number now or press star zero to leave us your feedback. What is a trophic cascade? Have you ever heard this term? Some define a trophic cascade as a food chain, but it's much more than that. A trophic cascade is a group of changes in an ecosystem triggered by the removal or addition of a top predator. Gray wolves were exterminated from the greater Yellowstone area in the 1920s and were absent from the landscape for nearly 70 years. In 1995 and 1996, gray wolves were reintroduced to the area from packs in northwestern Montana and southern Canada. Many scientists agree that the return of gray wolves has brought about numerous positive changes, including lessening the once overpopulated ungulate population to the return of more plants, songbirds, and beavers. 
The Grizzly and Wolf Discovery Center is in the process of constructing a riparian habitat, essentially a stream channel ecosystem, and bringing river otters and other species to the center. We are hoping our Banks of the Madison exhibit will help illustrate the interconnectedness and importance of all animal species in Yellowstone. Please ask a naturalist if you have questions about trophic cascades or how you can help make river otters at the center a reality. Enter your stop number now or call us back when you're ready. Between 1995 and 1996, 31 wolves were reintroduced to Yellowstone National Park. This reintroduction was part of an effort to restore highly endangered gray wolf populations in the northern Rockies. Wolves were brought to Yellowstone from parts of Canada and northwestern Montana that closely resembled the greater Yellowstone ecosystem, including the most common source of prey, elk. Wolves were kept in acclimation pens for 90 days inside the park to keep them from immediately leaving the area upon release. Nearly all the wolves in Yellowstone National Park today are descendants of these original wolves. Enter your stop number now or press star zero to leave us your feedback. Can you speak wolf? In a wild wolf pack, wolves often use body language to communicate. The wolves at the center are no different. Look at their ears and tails to give you clues as to what the pack might be saying. A raised tail and ears that are perked forward could indicate a dominant wolf. A tail tucked between the legs and ears pinned back against the head shows a submissive wolf. Another common posture you will see is the play bow. A wolf is play bowing when it lowers its chest to the ground and raises its hind end while wagging its tail back and forth. You may have seen a domestic dog display this behavior before. Because wolves are very social animals, it is important that they communicate with each other in multiple ways. Wolves communicate not only through body language, but also through howling and other vocalizations, including yipping, barking, growling, and whining. Wolves communicate through smell, too. Scent marking through urination, digging, and rolling are all ways in which wolves can leave messages for each other that we cannot see. Hi guys, today we are at the Grizzly and Wolf Discovery Center in West Yellowstone, Montana. The animals at the center are unable to survive in the wild and will spend the rest of their lives at this not-for-profit organization. These animals were given a second chance and now play a very important role in educating visitors about grizzlies and wolves. The center is open 365 days a year. First, we're checking out the wolves from inside the naturalist cabin.
they're filming right now, huh? members of the dog family. Even though they rarely attack humans, they will attack people's livestock. Gray wolves in the United States were once almost hunted to extinction, but their population has once again stabilized. Are you guys going in the wolf den? Go on, Preston. Go in the den. It's very wet. And you can howl. It's not wet inside the den. You'll be dry in there. Are you guys in the den? What's it like in there? Dark. Dark? But is it warm and dry? You need a flashlight? Yeah. Yeah. You guys are like little wolves in there. What are you doing, Preston? Oh, they're dirty? Now you're washing them off? Oh, is that what you're doing? You're not playing in a puddle. You're actually cleaning your boots. That makes sense. Good job. They're nice and clean. All right. Time for a Howling Wolf montage. animals at the Grizzly and Wolf Center, such as this rough-legged hawk who can no longer fly, as well as three bald eagles. Sadly, most injuries to bald eagles are caused by humans. One of the bald eagles at the center was shot in the left wing and had to have it amputated. Great horned owl. There's great horned owls up there. Hey, Carter. Didn't we see a great horned owl nest yesterday with an owl in there that Daddy got pictures of? She was getting food rewards by doing so. This she is was getting spirit. into garbage. She was getting food handouts. Look, Preston. She was getting into bird feeders and pet food. Look, Carter. A residential area she knows how to... So she was living around a golf course, and unfortunately, although she didn't have dangerous encounters... But it was was at the Glacier National Park, but she was getting too close to people, and she was removed. And what else about spirit? What else did you learn about spirit? That people don't think that um, grizzly bears can climb trees because they're so big, but spirit actually can. Yeah, they said that a lot of times she'll climb her the trees in this habitat to reach food up in the trees. The Grizzly and Wolf Discovery Center is the only facility that tests bear-resistant products for the Interagency Grizzly Bear Committee. When a company designs a new product that is supposed to be bear-proof, they take it to the center to be tested. The product is placed in the bear habitat with tempting food inside of it. If the bear 
like spirit here cannot break into it after 60 minutes, then the product becomes bear resistant certified. This testing is important because bears who associate food with humans often become aggressive toward humans. It was super cool that we got to see Spirit test a container. Some bear testing fails. joining us today at the Grizzly and Wolf Discovery Center. Don't forget to learn something new every day. Carter Corner. Support. C-A-R-T-E-R-R. That's it. Outtakes. So, when Spirit was testing these, they failed. I'm not taking in any more pictures. Amazing, amazing work that that center does, don't you think, Phil? I certainly do think so, and I'll tell you that that was uh, really uh, intriguing once again. How much, Rich Hart? Thank you so much for making that tour possible. And uh, you know, I was really intrigued about the part about the bears, and I got to thinking about the Western stories I read about mountain men and how some of them would encountering a grizzly, they jump on him. They kind of wear him down. <laughs> and I think they would have loved to have that some of that bear spray. But this I think they would have, too. To turn to start the, out the convention. This first hour of two great tours. And uh, we are just uh, getting ready in about another minute to um, go into our next segment, which will be <clears throat> about friends from of GCB, and I, I'm really looking forward to it because uh, Dr. Jack Lewis and, and Marge, you certainly know this, being from Savannah, you certainly know what Jack Lewis has been like all throughout the history of GCB, basically, uh, when it comes yes. right down to it. And, yes, and, a member since our beginnings uh, in the 1950s. Amazing, amazing. <clears throat> He certainly, he's just done so much for GCB and, and ACB. And uh, also, we're looking forward to hearing from Fred McDade and uh, uh, Timothy Jones. I, I, man, Timothy, that guy really impresses me with, with all that he does as a young man. And uh, if I could go back, I'd like to do just as many things that he's been, he's doing right now. You know? But um, 
we're looking forward to that. And it's going to be a great hour. And this is just really, I believe, Marge, we're, get, we're just going to have something really great. I hope I'm looking forward to hearing uh, feedback from a lot of people on how this is going to go. Yes, I think I think we're on a roll here uh, following our tours. I mean, I think, too, that uh, we, we certainly were a, a bit concerned about how this whole convention would go doing something virtual like this is such a new experience. And even though, Phil, you and I... Um, you, I know more than than I do, have some radio experience. Nonetheless, uh, this is this is different. Being in our our homes, uh, I'm in Savannah, and are you in Loganville, or which town are you in? That's right. I am in the uh, Loganville area, which is a suburb of Atlanta, and uh, this is where I am, right in my home. And yes, yeah, so we're not really in a radio and, studio. Uh, fantastic, and I'll tell you. I, I love these uh, virtual conventions that have been, been happening for all over the, the country, and that just really gives us an opportunity to get to know all of our affiliates and ACB and realize what an important organization we are. It's incredible with this technology that we have now to be able to share so much with our members and others registered and those listening in, no matter where they might be um, on the planet, uh, through ACB Radio. We appreciate all of you uh, being here with us today, and um, I think it's about time that we start with our GCB member interviews. I believe so, too. So let's take it away. I am Marge Schneider, and I am sitting today in the home of GCB member Jack Lewis. We are in the Ardsley Park neighborhood of Savannah, and today is Tuesday, September 29th, 2020. And I'm here to talk with Jack Lewis about uh, your History, Jack, with the Georgia Council of the Blind. You have been a member of the organization since 1958. And so that means um, some decades here in the past. And I'm wondering if you can tell us the story of what you were doing at the time when you learned about the organization, where you were living, uh, how you heard of it, and uh, how you became involved in the organization at that time. Sure. Uh, I had graduated from the University of North Carolina and stayed, and stayed in Chapel Hill for a year uh, selling insurance and mainly carrying around a briefcase trying to sell insurance. But that did not uh, work out satisfactorily, so I came back to Savannah and... Uh, now, standing on the bus stop, I was selling hospitalization insurance. And I was standing on the bus stop, and a guy stopped to give me a ride. And he, and he was the manager of a new cemetery here in Savannah, Forest Lawn uh, Memory Gardens. And um, he was telling me about their sales program, and he talked me into going with them. And, and uh, that's what I did, and did uh, quite well at it. And we had a conference, this was in the latter part of 56, and in 58 we had a, a convention uh, of the five cemeteries in the southeast. 
so um, when I was there, I looked up an old friend of mine I went to school for the blind with, named Otis Booth. And he um, was telling me about this organization. I had never heard of it. But he was telling me about the National Federation of the Blind and their uh, affiliate here in Georgia. So um, th th so he had me to meet the president, Walter R. McDonald. And very briefly, Walter R. McDonald was a Georgia Public Service Commission uh, who ran, I guess, every four or six years at the state level. And he had held public office longer than any other elected official in the state of Georgia and state government. And he served for 49 years uh, when he passed away. But he was president of the Georgia Federation. And so he and Otis kind of ganged up on me to, get, uh, to see if I could organize a chapter here in Savannah. And I, so I came back with a lot of enthusiasm. And this sounded like something very valuable to us blind people. So I came back and I got busy and organized a chapter. Uh, it did not last a long time because not within a year, uh, after that, um, I ended up moving to Atlanta, and it kind of, um, I guess, fell apart, went dormant. And so, um, so when I got to Atlanta, I got involved. But when I was here, being president of the, the local here, I was automatically on the Georgia Federation board. And so I, I was going to their board meetings, and I really became addicted. It was a cause that I was just very excited about. And for several years, I was just uh, very devoted to it and kind of climbed the ladder in the organization pretty quickly. What were the sorts of um, issues that people were working on that at that time? What was the organization like? Was it a lot a social organization or was it really an organization that worked on issues? Well, it worked on issues. Um, what um, the, that I remember was the first one that when I got in is that the workers at the Georgia factories for the blind, as it was known at that time as factories, uh, were working for way below sub-minimum wage. And so um, as a board, we had Walter McDonald to take the initiative to see if we can do something about it and were successful in getting, uh, getting for, uh, benefits for the people at the factory and a and a, a decent wage. And that was the first accomplishment that I was aware of. And then the, uh, there was others that we dealt with uh, as issues arose. Uh, one thing, there was an organization in Atlanta had, which was the probably, he, the guy that ran that thing used to say he had the most successful begging operation in America. And he was kind of imitating the National Federation of the Blind and sending out unordered merchandise, namely, at that time, neckties, 
the same as the NFB was doing as a fundraiser. And um, he was doing it for his organization, the Georgia Industries for the Blind. Uh, for those who are familiar with Atlanta, it was on Memorial Drive. And, and he had very few handicapped people. I doubt if he had three or five in there. And uh, one guy who was very disabled, partially blind, and doubled over with, um, with a, uh, some type of disability, had him uh, following up on their soliciting. And, and, call, and what they were doing is calling on the telephone locally and selling light bulbs. And so this guy would um, deliver them, and they provide him a driver, and, um, and so he would deliver them and collect the money. And uh, it, it kind of worked for their advantage into this guy, with all respect to him, kind of represented the stereotype of a blind person. He and, um, we kind of we tend to arouse people's pity. And, and he had some two or three others sitting around on a part-time basis. And uh, I was at a speaking engagement at a hotel in Atlanta to a Lions Club. And on the panel next to me was the head of the Better Business Bureau uh, in Atlanta. And he uh, asked me if I could help him out on something. And he asked me about the Industries of Blind, their memorial, and um, felt that there was a lot of misinformation that they were handing out. And But he was having difficulty getting information. And he asked if I could go out there and, and you know, and talk with the director and kind of feel out exactly what was going on, which I agreed to. At that time in Atlanta, I was selling cemetery property still. And uh, this time for a cemetery in, uh, in the west part of Atlanta, I guess, uh, it would have been. But um, so I went out there and just told the director, man, I've heard a lot about your organization. I just kind of want to look around. And uh, so he um, showed me around, and he later became a, um, I started to say a member of the organization, but the original director did become a member of the Georgia Federation. And so he showed, he, this guy showed me around. And he was showing me his office, all these little plaques all over the wall of all the people's, the blind people whose vision they got restored as a result of their service. And so I went back and uh, reported to the head of the Better Business Bureau that, you know, that I didn't see any evidence of what they were doing or what they were claiming. And, you know, I think that there was a problem there. And in the meanwhile, um, Walter McDonald had gotten concerned. And so we, as a board, agreed that we need to do something about it. So Walter McDonald called 
a public forum on their parking lot on a Saturday morning and had different blind people to uh, to explain their experience and and particularly how the, the organization was ripping off the public as well as blind people. But he had the big, big, big begging program and, ex- and exploiting blind people as a method of, of getting rich. So, um, so we went, invited the newspapers and the radio, and as a result of that, it, it developed enough momentum that uh, we, were, we were able to take the uh, Georgia the industries uh, for the um, blind in the court, not to be confused with the industries in, at the state level in Bainbridge and, mm-hmm. and uh, or, what's the name of the little t- in Griffin. Mm-hmm. So, um, so we uh, went to, took him to court and was successful in having his charter snatched out from under him. And when he when that happened, uh, two things happened. One thing that he went over to his church, and he and his preacher started doing it through the ch- church, advertising, promoting certain functions that they were accomplishing for blind people. And so it was not. And so we were were not very effective in stopping the church from doing that. And so that continued for uh, several years. And at the same time, Walter McDonald, who was a very influential person in the state and in the Atlanta area, very influential. As a matter of fact, Governor Sanders said one time if Walter McDonald was not blind, he would have been governor of Georgia. And he just had that much clout. So he got busy in setting a uh, set up a blue ribbon committee to establish a agency uh, for the blind in the Atlanta area. And um, it first started off community service for the blind, and it later became the center for visually impaired. So we got that accomplished and off the ground. Mm-hmm. At the same time all of this was going on, I think we need to touch briefly on um, the split that occurred yes. organizationally, given that uh, what you joined started off as the National Federation of the Blind of Georgia, and people are going to wonder, well, what does that have to do with Georgia Council of the Blind? That's right. In 19... Uh, uh, Fifty-eight. Uh, there became a conflict on the National Federation National Board. Walter McDonald was on the board, and he became concerned over a couple of things. Number one, that they did not have a satisfactory accounting for the solicitation program, and that the um, the company that was doing that uh, did, did not really have present a, a accountable breakdown 
of the fundraising. And it raised some questions of integrity that very much disturbed Mr. Mack, as we call him. Also, uh, the leadership was going over to Europe to different organizations, and Walter McDonald got concerned that there's no reason for us to have all these people going at the expense of the blind people in the country, that the money uh, that the National Federation has should be devoted to, to the independence of blind people here in the state not taking uh, uh, trips over to Europe and uh, partly uh, to attend meetings but more kind of a vacation and so that became a major dispute and then personalities got involved in the conflict and that's when all hell broke loose and so there was uh, attacks on the um, management of uh, the leaders of the NFB, and there was attacks on the groups that were behind Walter McDonald. So, and it became very intense. So in 1960, and at the National Convention of Miami, of which I was there, mm -hmm. uh, the NFB leaders, uh, Jacobus Tenbrook and Ken Jernigan especially, were successful in organizing opposition and getting about five states suspended, or six states, from the organization. And they were given conditions to be able to, to continue in the organization. And the conditions were such that it would have been unacceptable. For example, in order to, get to, to be in good standing at the National, they would have to agree to expel from their organization certain members within the estate, such as Gerald Pye here in Georgia. And Gerald was not involved in that National conflict. In other words, they came up with the names of the most popular members of the state affiliates, knowing full well that the state affiliates would not go along with it, and which would give uh, them grounds as not to, re uh, to reinstate those suspended affiliates. In 1961, at that convention, which I did not attend, uh, they were successful in not readmitting the suspended states. And so at that point, the, uh, uh, the uh, members from the suspended states and some others went over to a hotel across the street in St. Louis and organized the American Council of the Blind. And so that's how it all got started. Mm-hmm. But the organization in Georgia, which was among those suspended affiliates, carried on as the Georgia Council of the Blind. No, we, uh, it was kind of childish. The NFB uh, had some affiliates such as the California Council mm. of the Blind. 
And the, and those who had the council name said, well, we're not giving that up. You know, we're part of NFB, and they kept it. At the same time, Georgia Federation said, we are known as that, and we are not giving up our names. So the Oklahoma Federation of Blind, the Georgia Federation of Blind, and many others insisted on maintaining the name Federation. So it was confusing to everybody in, in the public, the blind and professionals that uh, work with the blind, that, uh, you know, that, uh, who's who. And, and it was not until... I was, I'm going to say probably back into the 80s that they got their heads on straight and all the affiliates and the American Council of Blind became the council, the Georgia Council, the Oklahoma Council, the California Council, the California Council finally became, you know, the Federation and where it got um, reflective of the national affiliate that they were in. Well, interesting. I was not aware that it took that long for those um, name changes to... It might have been. I'm uh, sure there was some that made the changes before then. But back in the 80s, it was looked like that it was all ironed out in that regard. Well, that is, that is very interesting and an interesting slice of, of our history. We're just about at the end of our, our time for this interview, but what this tells me is that I need to come back over to your house on a regular basis and uh, interview you more about uh, some of the other things that went on in the organization, uh, the 60s, the 70s, and, of course, you left for a period of time um, to I've teach just, in Indiana. I changed professions and uh, went back to the, the college and um, got a doctorate in uh, rehabilitation. And then I went to, um, uh, to Anderson, Indiana, where I taught in a, private, a small private university for 20 years. Mm-hmm. So... We, we have several topics because, of course, when you came back, you continued your involvement with Georgia Council, and uh, uh, I imagine that after 20 years there were some differences. So uh, we need to, to schedule more interviews and, uh, and hear more about all of this great history. So thank you. Thank you very much, okay, Jay, I'm for I've been more than glad to, to uh, meet with you whenever it's convenient for you and you find a little space on the program or whatever. We'll do it. Great, great. Well, I'm glad we had a chance to get together. All right, I am here with Mr. Fred McDade, and you are from the Northwest chapter, is that right? That is correct. And how long have you been affiliated with GCB? I've been affiliated with about 12 years. 12 years, pretty good, pretty good long time then. Yes. And you're the president right now, aren't you? Yes, that's right. Chapter, Northwest Chapter. Well, that's good. That's good. Uh, do you mind if I ask you how you lost your vision? No, I don't mind at all. Ask me anything. Well, I lost my vision in Vietnam War. I, I got hit with a rocket-propelled grenade riding in 
uh, leading the convoy out and got hit with a, a rocket propelled grenade and it blew my Jeep in a little bit of pieces and uh, the metal from the Jeep from the explosion uh, blew my eye out and I uh, got strapped blew the right eye out and the strapped in the left eye. I mean, with some lead, it's still in the left eye, but it, it made it, you know, who I couldn't see. Sure, sure. And uh, Vietnam, so I guess that's been a pretty good long time ago. Yes, yes. 1968. All right, all right. And you were in the Army? Yes, I was. I understand you were an Army Ranger. Uh, say that again. Were you an Army Ranger? No, I was in... Uh, Army transportation, I did it with vehicles. I, I was a platoon leader in um, the 11th Armored Cavalry, um, delivering ammunition and supplies to, to all companies. Oh, all right. That's really interesting. Mm. Do you have a family? Uh, yes, I do. I have a wife and a uh, First wife was with three kids, and I remarried, and I got uh, six, so we got a total of nine kids. All right. Any grandkids? Oh, yes. <laughs> about 18 of them. 18 hey. grandkids and about uh, four great-grandkids. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Yes. Have you lived in Georgia all your life? Yes, I have. I lived in uh, Georgia all my life. I was, uh, I was born in the country, and uh, which was Mary County or Chatsworth, and I moved to Dalton in 1953, in Dalton, Georgia, in 1953, and, we, and that's where I've been living ever since. All right, all right. Well, what would you say to folks about how to do well as a blind person? Uh, very good question. I would tell people, as as a, a black person, it, it's kind of um, it's kind of challenging and uh, stressful. Sometimes um, you you be rejected and uh, uh, you know denied a uh, certain thing that you know you you should have. But in those cases, like that, would be uh, be one of the things I have objection to. Absolutely, yes. And does your vision impairment make certain things harder? Yes. Matter of fact, my vision impairment made it uh, double hard uh, for me. I, I always say I had two strikes. I used to be a professional ball player, and I, I had, had two strikes against me. One is being black and then being blind. Oh. So I had, <laughs> had two strikes against me from, you know, after I got hurt and lost my sight. Sure, sure. Tell me more about being a ball player. Uh, what team was that for? Okay, I was a professional ball player with the Washington Simpsons, who now is the Texas Rangers. They moved from Washington and went to Texas. But that is another team in Washington, but that's a different team. They're from Montreal. My, they was, Washington Simpsons, and they moved to Texas Rangers. What uh, position did you play? I played shortstop. Cool, cool. That's really neat. Thank you. What else would you like to tell us about yourself, Mr. Fred? Anything? 
So you have a passion for working with youth, then I guess. Oh yes, I I, I love working with youth. I I, I you know I get uh, pleasure and I, I listen to them, and some of them, you know, I kind of help them deal with that situation. Uh, especially the high school students. I I know I got eight different letters from them that I you know help them. So, but uh, anyways, I enjoy working with the youth. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you're our chaplain with GCB, the the GCB chaplain. Um, do you go to church? Oh, I, absolutely. I I go to church. I belong to Mount Salem Baptist Church, and I'm a chairman of the deacon board. And uh, so I I love going to church, and I'm a Sunday school teacher. All right, that's wonderful. Thank you. That's wonderful. Well, thank you, Mr. Fred, for talking to us today. I really appreciate it. Well, you're quite welcome, and I'm, I'm glad you called. And, uh... Stand by for the next interview with Timothy Jones and Nancy Jones. Good morning. I'd like to introduce you to Timothy and Nancy Jones. Timothy Jones is a visually impaired young man, young adult at this point, in college in Georgia. And we are going to talk with him a little bit about his musical journey. He's a very musical young man. Uh, Nancy, why don't you start us out and start by telling us when you first noticed Timothy's musical talent. Well, um, Timothy, of course, was born blind, but we weren't aware that he was blind. Even the doctors missed it until he was about three months old and a friend of mine who had had her first child about the same time as I did, Timothy, came over with her baby to visit. And I noticed her baby in his little car seat on the kitchen floor was tracking my movements as I went walked around the kitchen. And Timothy for some time had been, his eye movements had been very erratic. He had, his eyes had been bouncing back and forth. Uh, the proper term is nystagmus. And I had thought, since he was my first child, I thought, well, I know babies take a while for their eyes to focus. Maybe his eyes just aren't focused, but I didn't know how long a while was. None of the books said. So I asked my friend, how long has he been doing that? She said, doing what? And I said, 
following you with his eyes like that. She said, oh, I don't know a long time. And my heart just got this cold chill. I thought something's not right. So when Timothy woke up from his nap after they left, I started doing some things to try to test his sight and realized something was very wrong and called the pediatrician. Uh, That led to three months of testing and um, x-rays and all other sorts of exams. And right before Christmas, when he was about six months old, seven months old, no, six, because he was born in July, um, we got the news that, well, the doctor was rather brusque about it. He just said, his retinas don't work. He said, get in touch with some group like Georgia Pines or Babies Can't Wait or something. He was very brusque about it. Wouldn't even give me the name of a diagnosis. I don't know if he knew himself, but um, it was through another doctor that I finally got the diagnosis of Leber's congenital amaurosis. So I immediately got him into Georgia Pines, got him into Babies Can't Wait, uh, found out about the National Academy of Child Development. And I, as a former teacher, I highly recommend that group. That is a gentleman who was a special needs teacher himself, and he designed a program because he realized getting therapy for an hour or two once a week isn't nearly enough. And he designed a program to analyze a special needs child's needs uh, in a number of different areas and to train the parents to give the therapy. Here's what you do. You do it this often a day. You do it for this long every time you do it that sort of thing. His name is Robert Doman, and the the group is out of Utah, I believe. National, I believe they've changed their name. It was National Academy of Child Development then, but it's still called NACD. At any rate, we started the therapy program. We started surrounding him with music, musical toys, um, tapes. You know, we were building all the sensory areas. He had us working on touch, on uh, balance issues, on tactile issues, And even on what residual sight he had, he had us doing visual exercises. But, of course, one of his recommendations was to build his, uh, the sensory mobile uh, of sound in his life. So we were playing music all the time. And one of my favorite Christian artists at the time was Twyla Paris. And so we played Twyla Paris in the car, at home, all the time. And one of her songs is Lamb of God. I don't know if you've ever heard it. It's a beautiful little song. Mm-hmm. And one day I was in the kitchen. Timothy, at this time, was not quite two years old. He was toddling around. He could hold himself up if he held on to things with one hand. And I hear the piano, which was in the living room, and I'm in the kitchen, and I hear this little single note, dum, 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 dum. And I'm thinking, what? And I walk into the living room. Here's Timothy. His eyes are just level with the keyboard on this little spinet piano, he, you know, and he is perfectly picking out the tune of Lamb of God. And I'm thinking, whoa, he's not even two years old yet. And so I called a friend of mine who was an organist. And I said, look, he's my first child. I don't know. Is this normal? She said, no, it's not normal. Get him a teacher. <laughs> so <laughs> so I, of course, he was too little. It wasn't even two to actually start piano lessons. But I started getting him into things like um, kinder music. Mm-hmm. and other programs for young children to develop their musical acuity, I guess would be the word. And from there, we got him a piano teacher after a long struggle. There were too many piano teachers who were, I'd approach them, I have a child, he's gifted, he wants to learn music, would you be willing to teach him? Oh, sure, well, he's blind. Oh, 
I wouldn't know how to teach a blind child. And then we finally found a lady at our church. She was a fairly new accompanist at the church, and we had just changed to this church. And her name was uh, Patty Bennett. And we found out, we were impressed with her musical play, and we found out she taught students. So I approached her after church one day, my husband and I, and we said, we have a son who we feel like is really gifted in piano. Would you be willing to take him on? He's five years old. I think then he had just turned six, hadn't he? Uh, or, yes. I, we started in February of 2000. That's right. So you just turned six. And um, she said, well, sure. And I said, well, I have to tell you something. He's blind. She said, well, okay. <laughs> Why should that matter? <laughs> have you been taking lessons ever since, Timothy? Mm-hmm. Yes. So I spent 14 years with Miss Patty and um, I wanted to learn organ too. And so uh, the Lord finally opened a door for that in 2007. I was able to get a free organ, believe it or not, from a church my grandmother had connections with. And uh, they said, the only catch is you have got to come pick it up. So my dad got his trailer out there and brought it home. And Miss Patty taught me lessons on that organ at my house for about a year and then handed me over to several other teachers who carried the torch uh, for the next um, about seven years. So, on piano and organ. so I was doing piano and organ combined. I, I continued with Miss Patty on piano till 2014. And I was taking organ with several different teachers from 2008 to 2014 as well. Mm-hmm. And then for college, I had to make a decision, which do you major in piano or organ? The Dean of Mercer, where I applied, wisely told me, do not try two music majors. It's, it, it's way too hard. Especially when you're supposed to be 20 hours yeah. of practice a week and you're given instrument. Yes. So he said it's, it's, it's impossible. You got too many different classes today. So I chose organ with hopes of bringing it up to an equal level with piano. And um, I ended up going for organ performance. So um, after spending four years there, then I had to decide what do I do for graduate studies? Because music majors always told me you've got to have a master's if you want to make a living as a musician. So I thought about church music and uh, the school I applied to for that, unfortunately had to cut their program due to lack of funds. So one day my mom is um, at the uh, Greek festival and she can tell you this story probably better than I can, but we, I ended up getting in Georgia state. So I'll let her tell you how that. Well, I ran into an old friend that I had known. I went to Mercer also when Mercer had a university in Atlanta when it was a full four-year college. And um, I ran into her at the Greek Orthodox Festival. And I said, don't I know you? You look familiar. Well, it turned out she was another education major too. We changed a little bit in 30 years, but (laughs) she recognized me too. And I told her Timothy's dilemma because she was a music teacher. Her major had been music education. Mine had been regular education. And she said, oh, Georgia State has a program in uh, piano pedagogy on the graduate level. I'm like, they do? So, Yeah, so, um, yeah, I didn't mention, um, I discovered one of the requirements for church music was advanced choral conducting. There's a problem with that. <laughs> um, I literally had to hold my professor's hands throughout undergraduate conducting, and I thought, I really don't want to do that again. I could probably conduct a church choir if I had to, but... I don't want to do it for grades. (laughs) So um, my several people in high school recommended that I should do piano pedagogy. And I kind of shoved the idea on the corner. 
Well, at a, when I was in my junior year trying to figure out, okay, what do I do now since church music's out? Um, I called up the pastor emeritus of my church because he was a former music pastor and he knew that I could play and everything. He said, Timothy, you should do piano pedagogy. I think you'd make a great teacher. And I thought, God, are you trying to tell me something here? And his piano teacher, Patty Bennett, said that too. He helped her with a couple of uh, summer uh, music camps she did. Hmm. And he told me, Nancy, he's a natural born teacher. And of course, his heart is to work with blind students. And he's been working with a, a young blind student and has the possibility of working with another young lady soon. So we hope that will work out. But right now, he's doing his practicum with two young sighted students. And I said, Timothy, this is great. You'll be well rounded. Absolutely. That's wonderful. I know you have a website, and that's a part of your ministry. Why don't you tell the folks how they can access your website? Yes, uh, my website URL is um, byfaithnotbysight.net. Um, that's S-I-G-H-T, of course. Um, and I got the URL from 2 Corinthians 5-7, for we walk by faith, not by sight. And that verse is actually right on my homepage. Um, there's a link on the website to a YouTube channel. Um, and the YouTube channel name is Timothy Raymond Jones. but for the sake of caution, I recommend that you get to it through the website. That way you'll ensure you get the right channel. There are some people who have channel names similar to mine, and the content is not so good. All right. Good to know. It's wonderful. I checked it out last night. Some beautiful playing on there that you can listen to. Thank you. All the videos up there are live, unedited takes, by the way. Oh, I wanted to do that to give a true representation of um, what God has allowed me to do. That's wonderful. And Timothy has come uh, to play at, I think we decided, three different GCB conventions. Is that right? Yes. I played at the 2015 one um, in Cartersville, the 2016 one in Savannah, and the 2019 one at Rutledge. One of the somewhat unique parts of your story, given that you're now in a master's program is that you were homeschooled. And uh, I would like to talk about that a little bit, if you don't mind. Yes. Well, you got my teacher right here. <laughs> Miss Nancy, I understand that you went back to school in order to be prepared to educate Timothy. Is that right? I did. It's really fascinating um, how God guided us every step of the way with <clears> this. <throat> and in fact, um, I've told Timothy the by faith, not by side applies as much to me as to him because um, I told him, you know, you never know what's going to happen the next second. So in that sense, all of us are walking through life blind because for all I know, an asteroid could come through the roof and hit me in the next second. You know, I don't know what's going to happen next, but God just guided me every step. I was pretty, of course, depressed as a first-time mom coming to grips with the fact that I have a blind child and I'm like what do I do so I started reading lots of books my background was in education um started um studying um as much as I could uh getting magazines for parents of blind children anything I could lay hands on and one day in the newspaper I just happened to see an ad tiny tiny little ad um and the word braille jumped out at me and I thought what and I looked at it more closely and it was an ad for the Atlanta Braille Volunteers which I'd never heard of which was out of Dunwoody so that's not too terribly far from where we live 
and they were offering free classes in the Library of Congress Braille transcription class. So I called the lady up, talked to her about it. I said, now, I'm not learning this to transcribe books for others. I want to learn Braille to help my son and to transcribe possibly his schoolwork so that he can um, be homeschooled. Because I'd already thought, well, I'm not going to be able to homeschool because I'd looked into the cost of Braille textbooks. It's astronomical. So um, she said, sure, come ahead. And I will say this, having taken since Braille, uh, literary Braille courses, at Georgia State, um, this is by far the best course for a sighted person, a parent, to learn Braille. It's free. Uh, the Library of Congress provides all the workbooks and everything you need. I say it's free. At that time, you had to pay about $20 for your books, and that was the only cost. And, of course, if you want it as a class, you're going to have to find somebody local teaching it. I'm not sure if Atlanta Braille Volunteers does Braille classes anymore, but you could almost go through it yourself just as a correspondence course with the Library of Congress. But that's got me started. Then I found out there was a new program at Georgia State run by Dr. Kathy Heller uh, for teachers of the visually impaired. She had a background in special needs. She was concerned about the extreme deficit of teachers of visually impaired. And that is still an area there just aren't enough to fill the need. Um, and she started a course that, or a program, not one course, but I guess there were nine courses in the entire program for a teacher of the visually impaired certification at Georgia State. So I went back and, and got that under my belt, and that gave me a very good foundation for working with Timothy from uh, foundations of education for teachers of the visually impaired through courses in Braille, courses in Nemeth Math, uh, uh, introductions to orientation and mobility techniques, everything, you know, at least a good uh, initial grounding in what I would need. And um, I'm not happy with what the state is doing now. Many parents and uh, visually impaired people may not know. Sometime after that, the state decided, well, let's combine TVI and deaf. So now to get training as a teacher of the visually impaired, you also have to take the program work to become a teacher of the deaf because there's so much alike, you see. That's sort of like becoming a, a sous chef and a brain surgeon at the same time, but whatever. At any rate, <laughs> um, I got that training. And then I found at the, in those days you could work with quota funds through the um, Georgia Instructional Materials Center. So through them and through online sites such as Blind Homeschoolers, and uh, there were other sites where parents were homeschooling blind children, I was able to lay hands on um, elementary Braille materials. I got some from American Printing House. And because of my background in regular education and language arts, I felt it best to teach him first um, uncontracted Braille, what they called grade one then because I thought there's a phonetic one-to-one -one correspondence. If you start off with contracted Braille, you're having the child have to co conquer the ideas of phonics as well as the signs. And I figured, let's feed this in smaller bites. So we started with uncontracted Braille. Oh, and we also used, what was the uh, tracking? Sally Mangold. Sally Mangold. I found out about her through a conference, and that is a tremendous course for teaching uh, blind children to correctly track, to correctly hold their hands in the right position for reading Braille. 
Um, so I used that with him initially, and that's how he learned his alphabet. Then we got into the uh, American Printing House initial books. Goodness, I've forgotten the names. Do you remember the names of them? Some I'm afraid I don't. Neither one of us remember the <laughs> I names. I do remember Patterns. I patterns, remember. that's it, the Patterns series, and they still use that. And I also found some uh, Bob Jones um, books that a group out of Texas that is now defunct, but it was called Eyes of Faith, had brailed uh, some elementary Bob Jones reading materials. So that was his beginning experience. So um, step us out. You've come a long way and through mm-hmm. a lot to get there, but now master's degree. That's amazing. God has brought you a long way. And, you know, it's really been amazing at Georgia State because um, I'll be honest, um, outside of our home, And outside of the realm of my music teachers uh, that I had in grade school, many of the professors I studied under um, had the idea that if you can't sight read, you can't be successful. Mm -hmm. And so uh, Dr. Hayden at Georgia State, though, was like I told mom about another thing he mentioned to me. He basically said in a a very professional way that that's hogwash. (laughs) That... um, (laughs) You can, you can do it. You just have to do it a different way. And true, you may not be able to learn music as fast as your peers, but, um, you know, you can still do it. So he blew me away when I had, he, he did like a interview with me after my um, audition into GSU and said he would like, he said, how would you feel about doing piano tuning? And my mouth dropped open. I'm like, what? Seriously? Because And he's doing this in addition to your regular studies for free, isn't he? Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I had to buy the tools, but he's teaching me for free. His experience with accessibility in college, let me say Mercer was willing, which is a lot more than some schools are, but they were not ready for him. But he, by the time he left there, he had transformed the school, and they have mm-hmm. an excellent TVI there now. Yeah, or that's not what they call it on the college um, level. They call them a disability disabilities coordinator. coordinator. And she's up to date on all the latest technology, and they put in an entire, what do they call it? Braille Production Braille Center. Braille Production Center. Whereas before, when he first started, uh, the disabilities coordinator that was there then wanted him to do all of his classes by tape, in other words, by having the book read to him. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine? And they had only had one other blind student, and he was a law student, and somehow he made it through. He said he had to make his own code up for doing some of his uh, math classes. Well, thank you so much for coming on and speaking with us today, and I look forward to playing this at the convention, letting everyone hear your story. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, that was certainly certainly very intriguing, a very great interview there with... uh, Timothy and Nancy Jones, and uh, some of that I can relate to about uh, the Braille and also the fact that um, uh, I was born blind and it took several months to really discover that. And so, uh, and you know, I and it just made me think of parents, how many parents who have to deal with that when they discover their uh, child is blind. So I, I really admire uh, Mrs. Jones for just all the things that she has done to find out about uh, blindness and blind people and 
and, 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 and learning Braille, that is just something, isn't it, Marge? Yes, it, it certainly is. And there are some parents that, that do that. I, I missed out on being taught Braille as a, a young um, elementary school student, but I think my mother might have, uh, might have tried it because she certainly helped me in many, many ways and uh, did as much as she could. But uh, I missed out on that opportunity until I was 15, and then I, I learned Braille very quickly. Um, and and it, it is um, incredible that, uh, that parents will take that on, knowing that uh, to, to make materials throughout the school years accessible really does take some effort. And the more people who can be involved with that effort, the better it is for the, the student. And so, certainly Timothy has excelled in all that he has done and, and continues to do with his, with his God-given talents. A very amazing, very amazing story. We're, we're lucky to be able to, to share that with our uh, fellow GCB members and, and listeners on uh, ACB radio across the country. So we're, we're glad that you had the chance to hear this as well. Well, it's fantastic. I tell you, that, uh, this is really just uh, one example of all the great stuff we're going to have this weekend. Now, it's not all going to be serious stuff because we're going to have a trivia hour tomorrow afternoon at four o'clock so be sure to stay tuned for that as well absolutely one that everybody's going to want to be awake that time of day for sure (laughs) no taking a nap at four o'clock you folks so it is six o'clock according to my computer and uh we are up next with a roll call of our GCB, Georgia Council of the Blind, chapters from throughout the state of Georgia. You'll get to hear lots of voices. Then that will be followed by um, some music selections from Timothy. But Phil and I will be back um, to uh, lead up to the start of our GCB banquet at 7 p.m. This is Judy Presley, and I'm representing the, and I'm going to tell you this big, long name that we named ourselves a long time ago, and I'll tell you the reason. It's the Greater Hall County Area Chapter of the Visually Impaired. And the reason we chose that name was because we wanted to encompass all the uh, counties that were around Hall County, uh, Habersham, Towns, Union, White, um, Hall, all all the surrounding counties uh, that were around Hall County, and that's why we named it the Greater Hall County Area Chapter. Um, We meet normally the second Saturday of each month from 10.30 a.m. till 12 noon, at the um, Smoky Springs Retirement Residences in Gainesville, Georgia. Right now, we are meeting by phone, and we will meet at the same time, uh, the second Saturday of each month, but instead of 10.30, we'll be meeting at 11 a.m. until 12 noon. And the main 
things that we do, um, we try to always have a guest speaker and we try to choose guest speakers that um, have assistive devices or provide services or something that will um, give information to people who are blind and visually impaired. And there, our pet project is to send blind children to camp. And that's what we use. That's our main uh, purpose of our fundraiser is to send blind children to camp. And we managed to send at least two or three each year uh, to camp. And we'd love for anyone who is blind, visually impaired, has a friend who's blind or visually impaired or family member or um, anyone who is interested to please come and join our meetings. So thank you. Okay, I'm Tanya Clayton. I represent the Rome Floyd County chapter. We serve uh, Floyd, uh, Bartow, Tatuga, and the rest of northwest Georgia for people that don't have a chapter they can go to. We usually meet at the Rome Floyd Library on the third Tuesday at 11 a.m. till 1 p.m. But since the COVA, we've been doing it on conference call on the third Tuesday at 4 p.m. We've had uh, different speakers from the Northwest Georgia Center for Independent Living, GARS, and for White Cane Safety Day, we had our local Rome uh, Police Department come talk to us about White Cane Safety Day. We also had an article in the newspaper. Thank you. Hello, everyone. My name is Valerie Hester. I'm the member at large uh, representative for GCB. I am from Guyton, Georgia, which is about 30 minutes from Savannah. The member at large group meets every third Monday of each month. We held our meetings via conference calls. We serve the entire state of Georgia from the mountains to the beaches at St. Simon Island. Currently, we have 27 members and are always looking for new members to expand our group. During our meetings, we discuss topics from assistive technology to peer support. We also host guest speakers with a wide variety of topics. So please come and join our meeting. Monthly comfort calls. Uh, my name is Sharon Nichols and I belong to the Northwest Georgia chapter of the American Council for the Blind. We haven't met a whole lot lately because of the effects of the coronavirus. But we have met the last two months. Our chapter is fairly small. We have about 18 members. Some of them have not come back because they're elderly and are concerned about being safe from the virus. But usually in our meetings, we, uh, we open up in prayer and we always eat. So that's one good thing. And uh, then we talk about new and old business if we have any. And then if we have a speaker, we have the speaker talk to us and ask questions. And most of the time we go around the room and tell what everyone has done the last month. And <laughs> excuse me. And what, um, 
anything new in their lives and anything exciting. And then uh, sometimes we'll just talk about things that everyone wants to talk about or uh, things people have done in the past or uh, sometimes we'll sing or then we um, just talk for a while, visit and get to know each other better and then we close the meeting and go home. But it's lots of fun. It's fun, fellowship and food. And so we just, uh, we have a good time and it's uh, anyone would like to come, we'd be glad to have them. Thank you. Hi, my name is Cecily Nipper, Jr., and I represent the East Georgia chapter of the Georgia Council of the Blind. I am currently the vice president. East Georgia serves Rockdale, Newton, and Henry counties, among others. We have members everywhere from Loganville to Conyers and Covington. We have been meeting on conference calls since March and are now branching out to Zoom meetings. When we do meet in person, our meeting place is Conyers Presbyterian Church. Our meetings are held the second Saturday of each month at 10 a.m. During the past year, we have had speakers, done crafts, and even held a White Cane Day walk where we made posters, and played music and marched to the center of Old Town Conyers. We would love to have any of you visit us if you are in our area. Thank you. I'm Amanda Wilson, and I want to represent the uh, Georgia Council of Blind Digest newsletter. Um, it comes out four times a year and is always full of lots of interesting information about GCB, about their members, and what they're doing and what the chapters are doing. Um, and there's also lots of hints about um, how to be blind and to cope with blindness either in your house, your home, your community, or um, around the state. And we're always looking for people to interview. And if you have any way you'd like to help us, please let me know. Thank you. My name is Deborah Lovell, and I am the president of the Augusta chapter of the Georgia Council of the Blind. Um, we meet the second Saturday of each month, except for July and August. Traditionally, we meet at the Freeman Library. Of course, we haven't been able to meet since March at that location. We've been doing some virtual calls and things like that. We have a couple of projects that we do annually. One of them is that we um, have a, a National Blind Center for Veterans here in Augusta, so we always do a um, either some type of meal or a cookout or something for the veterans, and we focus it in the month of November because of and centered around Veterans Day. We don't traditionally do it on Veterans Day because many of the veterans already have other activities or because it's a long weekend, they're not usually there. But we do it in the month of uh, the month of November. We did that. We've done that every year since I've been involved with the chapter. Um, and we coordinate that with the staff at, at the uh, Augusta Blind Rehabilitation Center. Another thing that our chapter does regularly is we do what we call Geek and Meets, technology uh, meets, where we will um, get together and discuss um, 
some of the latest updates with like the iOS um, 14. Well, we got that. That one's coming up next week. Um, we're not meeting this week because of the holiday, but we'll be meeting the following Saturday, and that's going to be the discussion of that meeting. And we also offer that to people locally that are not members of our chapter. My name is Marge Schneider. I am president of the Savannah Council of the Blind. We meet on the third Thursday of every month in the evening, starting at 6 p.m. and usually running till about 7.30. We have traditionally, for a number of years, met in the conference room of J.C. Lewis Ford. Now, it may sound strange that... Uh, a group meets at a Ford dealership, but meeting space is hard to come by in Savannah, especially free meeting space. And through a connection um, to Mr. Lewis from one of our members, uh, we got permission to use their conference room since they don't use it that time of day. And uh, it's worked out well for us. And uh, we've been there for I don't even know how many years now, and we look forward to returning to that space as soon as we can, as soon as our members feel comfortable with meeting in person again. We've been holding telephone conference call meetings uh, since March, like many other groups. And we have members uh, from the city of Savannah, plus Tybee Island, plus uh, greater Chatham County, and we welcome members from Chatham County and any of the nearby counties. Um, we would love to, to uh, meet other blind folks um, in the coastal region. We know, of course, that transportation uh, can be an issue, but uh, anyone interested in checking us out, coming to a meeting, it's easier now by phone, but certainly coming to a meeting in person we can see what we can do to figure out something for transportation. We uh, have had various projects over the years and uh, focus often on uh, educational events around uh, White Cane Day in October. We enjoy uh, a social event usually during the summer season and during the holiday time and uh, have, especially during our holiday social events, have done various uh, fundraising projects for the community. Um, last year, we uh, all brought pet food to donate uh, that was going to be given out through Senior Citizens Incorporated to older folks with, um, with, with pets who uh, were having trouble affording pet food. Another year, we made a donation to uh, the Humane Society in Bainbridge, Georgia, because they had experienced significant hurricane damage that year. So we have tended, when we can hold a holiday event, to look around our community and beyond to see who's in need so that we can also um, give back um, to our community and beyond. And... Um, we are certainly looking forward to getting back together again 
and are in the midst right now of a project trying to do this via phone conference call to be more of a resource for people newly experiencing a vision loss in our community, especially those going through the Savannah Center for Blind and Low Vision for uh, rehabilitation training. They don't um, get much training there um, and often are, are leaving uh, really not having all the resources that they could. And the center knows that they can only do so much. And so we um, plan to um, distribute flyers to clients and former clients and uh, maybe even a refrigerator magnet so that they can keep our contact information and give us a call. We have the resource list that Kay McGill prepares and gives out through the Older Blind program. And plus we have the cumulative knowledge of all of our members who um, have expertise in different areas and have been um, dealing with uh, all kinds of aspects of living independent lives um, as blind and visually impaired people. So we want to be able to share that um, beyond uh, our own group um, to uh, those in the community who really do need um, to know about more what's out there both locally in the state and, and nationally. So that's, uh, that's what we're up to uh, with Savannah Council of the Blind. Hello, I'm Marge Schneider, and I am the secretary of Georgia Guide Dog Users. Georgia Guide Dog Users. We are a special interest affiliate of the Georgia Council of the Blind, which means we're a bit different from the other chapters of GCB because we are a statewide organization. What brings us together is um, being uh, guide dog handlers or people with a particular interest in guide dogs and, and what they do. We meet on a semi-annual basis. Uh, so uh, right now, that means meeting via phone. We will certainly be holding a meeting this fall and welcome inquiries um, about that. Last spring, uh, we met with uh, Janine Stanley, who's with the IRA organization, which um, trains sighted volunteers to um, give people visual information about their world through a smartphone app. It's a very innovative organization uh, and certainly works with a, a lot of guide dog users. So we uh, learned about um, what IRA is doing, some new innovations to their work and uh, how we can subscribe to the service from Janine. So um, because we're meeting some of the time by phone conference call it means we can invite um, interesting speakers to attend our meetings we also send out uh, news to our members whenever anything of interest comes along for um, those of us who work with guide dogs and we're affiliated with the national organization guide dog users incorporated so we have the resource of a lot of people at the national level who are advocates, uh, who are in touch with the guide dog training programs, uh, who know a lot about the scene at the national level. And that can certainly be beneficial to us here in Georgia. 
And we certainly do provide uh, support to uh, one another as members as well from time to time. And uh, that can be very important um, because a lot of times in our communities, we may be the only person who uses a guide dog. And so um, having those contacts and that support from a statewide organization can be really helpful when you run into situations where maybe some advocacy is in order or you just want support for something that's that's going on. We can be available that way in ways that the guide dog training programs um, can't be available. We can also provide support and information to people considering applying to guide dog programs for training for the first time. I know when I first uh, was thinking about um, working with a guide dog, I had friends that I talked to and that was helpful. But there were things that I didn't realize at the time that were that I wasn't really taking into consideration when I was applying to schools. And so I applied to one that a friend went to, which might be okay. But as it turned out, um, I should have been more concerned about the issue of how much follow-up support that school could provide because it couldn't provide me very much when it got to the point when I really needed that support. So we in Georgia Guide Dog Users really um, value having the opportunity to talk to those who are considering partnering with a guide dog because we can point out some things that maybe you haven't thought about that you should be concerned about that uh, you should look into ways you can do your homework things you can read um, all sorts of ways to be the best informed that you can be as you begin the process of of applying to the guide dog training programs so again, we're Georgia Guide Dog Users, and we're here for guide dog users in this state. We're here for uh, puppy raisers for the guide dog programs. We're here for those with an interest of the work of guide dogs. And we're here for those who are considering applying to a guide dog training program. Hello, everyone. This is My name is Steve Longmire. I'm a member of the South Metro. Uh, chapter of Georgia Council of the Blind. Uh, thanks for listening. Uh, my chapter is area is located in the Atlanta area, even though it's it's been named. It's been going going through a couple of name changes throughout the years. Used to be the uh, Atlanta chapter, and it was actually two chapters. Uh, some years ago, but it merged into one over the last, I believe it's the last 10 years or so. And so our name is the South Metro chapter. Uh, we don't serve, if you think about it, you might think we only serve just the South Metro area, but it's really, we serve more than the Atlanta South Metro area. It's all surrounding areas. Our members live in various areas, such as uh, I live in Decatur, for example which is to the to the east of the south side of Atlanta. Um, a good number of our members live in the Atlanta area, more towards the north Atlanta area, towards what is known as Buckhead. And we even have some that <clears throat> the back years ago when it was named the South 
Atlanta chapter, we had more members from that side of town where we used to meet. Uh, the most up-to-date news that we have, that we have before COVID, we were meeting at the Piccadilly Cafeteria, uh, which was located in Tucker, Georgia. Uh, of course, the last time we met was back in February. Uh, we have approximately 12 members that are active members. Uh, we normally meet when we meet. We have dinner and fellowship, and we would uh, talk about various things that are going on in the blind community. Uh, we talk about such issues as transportation, uh, legislative issues. Um, we also would just uh, fellowship with one another, and we also invite new people to come in at any time. Uh, and we do get those coming in from time to time. Uh, we also were this year, I don't know if what we're going to do this year, but normally in December, we would plan to have our Christmas party. And normally what we would do, we would sponsor a blind or visually impaired child. Uh, normally we would uh, normally we would uh, recruit these individuals from the Center for the Visually Impaired uh, from the STARS program in particular, or maybe the BEGIN program, uh, where we would, everywhere the members would participate by bringing in gift cards and gifts for the, uh, for the, for the young person that we sponsor. And also, uh, we would also provide meals for the, not only for the child, but also for some of the family members. Um, so we don't know how things are going to go this year. We've, uh, some of the members we, we've been talking off and on. We haven't had any, uh, in-person meetings. Obviously we haven't even scheduled, uh, any, uh, zoom meetings, but we're hoping maybe that will change in the near future, especially with, uh, with GCB making the effort to train its members on using zoom and other platforms to meet up with one another. So uh, that's what's going on with the GCB South Atlanta chapter. The chapter president, his name is Brent Reynolds. Again, my name is Steve Longmire. I am the treasurer of the chapter. I've been the treasurer since, uh, I believe, 2006, about a year after I joined the uh, GCB. Um, so that is what's going on with the South Metro chapter. Thank you very much. My name is Jerry Tony, and I'm president of the Athens chapter of GCB. And we meet on the fourth Saturday of every month at 10 o'clock in the morning at present because of COVID. We do it by conference call. We have different guest speakers depending on the topics that the group want to hear from and in October we're having a game night by conference calls so it should be interesting to see and we serve the counties around us I guess you would say Walton County, Greene County, Barrel, Oconee, Oglethorpe and of course Clark. It was certainly great to hear from all of our different affiliates about the things that they're doing around the state of Georgia. Rick needs just a few minutes to cue up the music that's coming next.
That's right, and that's going to be really, really good. I just got back from my banquet meal. <laughs> and it you was did. a wonderful dogs and french fries. Man, I love that. What a banquet meal. Oh, my gosh. Well, I'm having bean soup, but I'm going to wait for a while to have that until our banquet is really rolling and I can feel like I'm having a proper banquet meal. <laughs> Do you say chili, jo- chili dogs from the varsity? Uh, Ooh. Little homemade chili dogs. Music by Timothy Jones. Hi, I'm Timothy Jones, and I would like to play for you today Sonata Opus Number 1 by Timothy Jones.
what wonderful playing of uh, some of Bach's organ music. Um, just amazing. That from Timothy Jones of uh, Georgia Council of the Blind, um, bringing you his talent, uh, as he has at several uh, prior GCB events, especially uh, during our banquets. And um, I was thinking about this, and I believe that I have this correct, that as we go into the 7 o'clock hour with our 2020 GCB banquet, that if it happened every year, this will be the 64th banquet of this organization. That was Can you imagine right. It started in 1956, I think Yes. Right. And so uh, if it occurred every year... And, it, and I believe a convention occurred nearly every year, if I'm not mistaken. Do you know that, Phil? As far as I know, it did. And, uh, and this is, I would say, this is the 64th. Also, I want to comment, too, on Timothy's uh, great talent. I, I particularly enjoy the organ music. I uh, enjoy the organ very much, and uh, he... Uh, I associate organ music with um, soap operas of the old days and uh, also with great traditional worship music and yes. uh, some good classical music. And I, 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 I think it's great that Timothy's on a mission to kind of get people interested in classical music again. And uh, he is certainly proving it with his own talent. And we are certainly great to have some good entertainment by him for uh, uh, this uh, this evening, and uh, you know, and in, 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 I think that um, we we just had some uh, <clears throat> great things going on this afternoon. It was just great to hear from our old friend Jack Lewis, and just to hear what he had to say about the history of the organization and uh, the uh, stories. I mean, I. I know I heard a lot from him in the days when he was GCB president. He and I worked together very closely, and it was just one of the most enjoyable times I ever had in GCB. Jack is is an amazing and is still um, in in his later years um, an advocate. Uh, he has been on transportation, such an important advocate um, here in Savannah. And uh, we've we've valued um, him as a member so much, and valued him as a person. Um, he's he's great to have at meetings for his knowledge, um, his his advocacy skills, and he's great to have at a party. Nobody better to have at a party <laughs> than Jack Lewis. Right I'll tell <laughs> you. And in Savannah, we like to party. I know, but I've never, I've never been down there to Savannah during party time, meeting uh, St. Patrick's Day. So, I, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, yeah. Uh, anyway, we we do have some things coming up. The banquet is just less than ten minutes away now, and uh, we're we're going to. Uh, you know, we haven't said anything about this yet, but we are going to start the banquet off with. Uh, Two-door prizes, and we're going to end the banquet with three-door prizes. I, I think that's correct, isn't it? Yes, it is correct, and uh, we'll, we'll be doing that before too long, and uh, I know that's what 
everyone looks forward to with with banquets i think more so than than the banquet meal phil you mentioned that you've already had yours but i'm sure others are are thinking about uh thinking about what what uh, might be happening for dinner this evening i hope everyone has has plans for something wonderful to eat i know that quite often we make jokes about uh horrible banquet meals or at least very forgettable banquet meals that we've we've had in the past but uh i think sometimes uh we we underestimate and uh that there have been memorable banquet meals as well at least for for me i know there there have been a few not all of them have been overcooked chicken um there there have been times when uh oh, the food has been I, memorable it, and you wonderful. know uh, I know some of the national conventions. Some some year you would go to Kentucky. You would you would have real Kentucky Fried Chicken or or ham or in Minnesota. I remember having Minnesota walleye fish. Um, oh gosh, Bill! You know I grew up with walleye. You, you know I'm a Minnesotan, right? I don't have the right accent. You know I'm I'm a Northerner, and um, my my father. Um, fished it was his major hobby that and hunting winter spring summer whenever the seasons allowed for it and uh and we ate a lot of freshwater fish and and i miss it terribly um it was it was wonderful fish so you got me going on a minnesota memory (laughs) (laughs) i am but uh no i i really uh, I think these virtual conventions do give us an opportunity to have our own banquet meal. And I, I'm just, uh, you know, I think we, if we have a little time tonight. We might want to just share what we had, you know, <laughs> and over the nightcap. We have the nightcap tonight at 930, which is going to be very interesting, too. And uh, <clears throat> I may as well kind of put in a plug for it. Uh, next Tuesday evening, the community call that I host uh, each month to come chat with Phil, we're going to have a you know, look back. A convention look back. Okay, folks. Well, <clears throat> it is just about time to get started with the banquet. And uh, <clears throat> as I mentioned, we will have two door prizes. And I wonder if our door prize people are ready yet. Yes, we hey, are, Phil. We're. I'm. This is Jennifer, and I'm here with Jamaica. Jamaica's in the next room, and she's ready to pull the numbers out of a bowl. She's got Braille numbers in there, ready to pull those out. So, shall we go ahead? What are we uh, giving yes. away for our first store prize? Okay, the first one we have was donated by Glass, and that's Georgia Libraries for Accessible State wide services and we have a $25 visa gift card that they donated that we're going to give away first so Jamaica is reaching into her bowl all right I got one and the lucky door prize winner is 72 okay number 72 let me look on my list that's a very recent registrant, just just a latecomer, Aaron Willis. That is the first winner of the $25 Visa gift card. Congratulations. All right. Congratulations, Aaron. Congratulations. Unfortunately, we don't have a sound effects applause tape going. <laughs> 
And do do we have a second door prize? We do. The second one that we're going to give away tonight is um, a McDonald's $20 gift card. And this was purchased by the Georgia Council with money that was donated from the chapters and from some private donors. So we have a $20 McDonald's gift card. And Jamaica is scooping a number out of the bowl. A sec. Okay. Number 38. Okay. And number 38 is Jan Elders. Woohoo. Congratulations. Very good. Jan is from the Savannah chapter. All right. $20 McDonald's gift card coming your way, Jan. All right. Well, thank you very much. Um, Jamaica and Jennifer, it sounds like you've got your system down, so that's good. What I'd like to do next is um, bring on our Georgia Council of the Blind president, Alice Richhart, for a welcome to this convention. We don't know what we do in this organization without Alice to keep us on track keep us moving along, keep us in line. And here she is in her second term. So come on over, Alice. President it's all yours now. Take it away. Are you there, Alice? I am indeed. Good evening. Good evening. I, good evening. <laughs> I am certainly excited. I've enjoyed what I've heard so far. And I just want to say welcome to all of those around the state of Georgia and all those around the United States who are listening in on ACB radio. We are so lucky and blessed to be able to have them help us with our conference. Our Our theme tonight is called GCB bridging the gap. And we certainly are doing that. We're bridging the gap from Going from a in-person to a virtual, we're bridging the gap by having program that features our young individuals and then also all the way up to our senior individuals. Just a little quick story is I actually got involved with the Georgia Council because of Jack Lewis. Jack um, knew about me from Indiana because I went through the social work program in the town next to where he actually was a um, social work professor and my professors told him about me. And so when I got to Georgia, he looked me up and had me get involved. Um, So, and, you know, hearing Timothy play from our young folks and then tomorrow we'll even be bridging the gap even more when we hear from the national organization and some of those special interest affiliates And it'll be exciting for us to learn more about how we can get involved at the national level and bring it back to the state level with some of the special interest affiliates. So enjoy the evening. I'm looking forward to hearing and and finding out about some more of our special people here in in our um, affiliate. And just to let you know before I go, my banquet meal was fried popcorn shrimp. All right. Delicious. That sounds good. And before we go, I want to point out for all our listeners that Alice's profile picture tonight is her feeding a bear, I believe, at the very same center that we heard about 
this morning, although that may not be true. Not, not quite, but it, it was at Yellowstone, but it was called Bear World. And I would just say to anybody, and especially those folks living in North Dakota, and I know we've got probably some folks listening tonight from North Dakota, or and they will be speaking tomorrow, but anybody in North Dakota, Idaho, Montana, South Dakota, that area, Utah, if you get the chance, you really should go to the Discovery Rehab Center that we did hear about and go to Bear World because it's the most awesome experience to get to be able to feed and touch a real live bear. Well, that's cool. And if we could get Mr. Jeff Stump to come to the microphone, he'll be up next. He's our keynote speaker. He works in the office of the Georgia Attorney General, and he has a fascinating story of, of how he came on his blindness journey to successful businessman that he is now. And he will also talk about his family and whatever else he has brought up to share with us. So, Jeff, if you're ready, take it away. I am ready. Thank you so much for that introduction, and certainly thank you, Madam President, for for your words tonight, and uh, so happy that everyone is here. It's been a great convention so far. I was, I got to say, I was a little disappointed about the door prizes, that I, I wasn't a winner, but as all of you have heard, there's plenty more door prizes, and if you look on the agenda, it just looks jam-packed tomorrow, so be sure to stick around for that. Um, I got to tell you, I was uh, asked a few weeks ago to speak tonight, and my initial reaction wasn't exactly what I had expected. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm an attorney and I, I speak for a living, and uh, but this was a little bit different when I was asked to speak before all of you. I wasn't quite sure whether I had anything that that I could say that would impact anyone here at the convention tonight, it, 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 there was a lot of self-doubt. And um, as I said, that was really unexpected for me. And so I hesitated for a little bit in responding to that request. Uh, I, I just felt I needed a little more time to think about it. And it just so happened that during that time, um, I was starting a new class, um, uh, a new virtual class. It was called uh, voice for performance and life, and it is uh, was taught by Sammy Grant, who is visually impaired. And on the first day of class, Sammy had us go through an exercise, which I which I thought was really great and and, and helped me out a lot. And she said she told us to get into you know kind of a strong position where we felt strong, we felt confident, and. And any of you who want to play along out there, you know, go, go right ahead and do that. Whether you're sitting or standing, just get yourself in a confident and strong position. Uh, and she told us to say these three f- phrases to repeat after her. Um, those phrases were these. I am me. My voice is me. My voice has something to say. Now, you know, I really liked how those three phrases built on themselves. Um, you know, I am me, my voice is me, and that really kind of jumped out to me initially because I hadn't quite thought of it that way. But, of course, whenever we speak, we're really telling people a lot about who we are. And then the last phrase, that's the one that was really the kicker for me. My voice has something to say. Uh, I wasn't feeling that initially. I wasn't feeling that my voice had something to say, and I was really allowing fear 
to silence that voice. And the more I thought of it, about it, the more I realized that by allowing my fear to prevent myself from speaking tonight, I was missing an opportunity to perhaps affect someone's life out there, to impact their life with my story. It's a, it's a story about a 19-year-old uh, who lost his sight. Um, and along the way, discovered his voice. I'm, I'm originally from Christiansburg, Virginia, which is in the southwestern part of uh, Virginia. Uh, my wife often refers to me as a northerner because I come from Virginia, but I, I think anyone who hears my accent would think otherwise. And I, I wouldn't say I was a great student in school. I was really a reluctant student, not someone who thought that education was, was all that important. Uh, especially in high school, it was seemed to be more important to go out with my friends and have a good time instead of cracking open the books at night. So I did okay in high school. Um, and I graduated in 1986 and went on to one semester of college, which was again, a reluctant person going into uh, getting an education. I j- it just wasn't feeling it. I wasn't there. I wasn't mature enough to appreciate the opportunity I had been given. And so I dropped out um, after the first semester. And so we're up to 1987 now. I was, I was 19, living with my aunt and uncle, Phil and Shirley Gilly in Christiansburg. Uh, my mother had passed away a couple of years earlier from brain cancer. And, and my father, quite honestly, was just absent for, for many good reasons. And I, I really didn't have very much going on. Um, I started looking for a job and actually found one. It was a, it was a good job. I was working at the Rafford Army Ammunition Plant, which uh, we just called around that area, was, was called the Arsenal. And it was a production line. Uh, we made gunpowder essentially for the military. And I, I really enjoyed it. It was hard physical work. Uh, but it was work that I, I, I did well and, and enjoyed uh, each and every day that I went. Um, and then come June of 1987, I, was, I went down to Myrtle Beach, South Carolina um, to have a few days off from work. And on my way back, I, late, it was late at night, June 25th, late at night. I ran off the side of the road and hit the back of a tractor and trailer that was broken down. Um, over on the side. And I don't, I don't remember any of that happening. Uh, what I do remember is really becoming conscious about, I don't know, maybe three or four days later uh, out of the ICU in a hospital. Uh, my eyes were bandaged up. And I remember the day when uh, the door opened uh, to my room and my family walked in you know, all the familiar voices walked in and were talking to me. And then my doctor walked in, Dr. Stephen Early. And Dr. Early started looking at my eyes and was taking the bandages off. And he, um, you know, and I realized, of course, I realized there didn't seem to be much of a change when he took those bandages off. Uh, it was still as dark as, as if I'd had those bandages on. And Dr. Early began to tell me that in the accident, both of my optic nerves had been damaged. There was no medically 
uh, medical way at that point to repair those nerves and that I was most likely going to be blind for the rest of my life. Now, that's a pretty hard hit for a 19-year-old kid to take. And, you know, I ran the gamut of emotions, as you might expect, but I I recently read a book um, by Viktor Frankl, uh, or Frankl, if you want to say it more in a uh, German-like tone, uh, called Man's Search for Meaning. And the first part of that book is autobiographical in nature. It, it describes his uh, life as a prisoner in a Nazi concentration camp of World War II. And Frankl describes some of the prisoners as having a loss of faith in the future. And that as a result, they were really mired in the past and they missed out on opportunities to make a positive difference in the current situation. And that was really me. You know, I'd lost faith in my future. I did not know how I would have one as someone blind. I didn't know anyone blind at the time. Uh, everyone I knew had, had sight. I had never experienced uh, what someone who was blind could do. And all I could see was the things that I could no longer do. I couldn't drive. I certainly wasn't going to get back to the arsenal. <laughs> The last thing they needed was someone blind there uh, walking around with with gunpowder in their hands. Uh, It was dangerous enough for someone sighted. And so, um, you know, I really didn't see that there was anything, any possibility for me, uh, whether it was career-wise or even uh, in my life, you know, to have a family, to have anything at that point. And it took, um, interestingly enough, it took really two rehabilitation counselors to to change all that for me. Uh, The first one uh, came from the state, from from the Commonwealth. I need to get that right. From the Commonwealth of Virginia. uh, Came by my house uh, one day. I was living with my aunt and uncle. I I don't know how that person got there. I think maybe my family had contacted rehabilitation services and had requested someone came come by and he came by and I didn't really get a word in edgewise because he was so busy telling me his vision for my life and his vision involved me working kind of part-time in a, a place you know for the blind and continuing to receive my social security benefits. That, that was his vision for me. And there's nothing wrong with that vision, but, it, but I just knew it was wrong for me. And it really sent me into probably a deeper state of depression than I'd had even when I found out that I was blind. And it made me search myself, search my soul really for what did I want to do? I, I, I didn't have a clue at that time. What what was it that I wanted for my future? Uh, not his vision, not his voice, but my voice. What, what did my voice want for my future? And I started to think back just a few years earlier when I was a younger teenager. And I'd always thought, you know, it'd be kind of neat to be an attorney. And that sounded, that really, that sat well with me. I, that sounded good. Sound like something that I wanted to accomplish. 
And it, it reinvigorated me. It gave me really a purpose finally. Uh, and, you know, even though initially it might've seen as the rehabilitation counselor was, was doing me a disservice, he'd really done me a favor because he forced me to think about my future, to realize that, that I did have one. And when the second rehabilitation counselor came by my house, cause I, I, I'm not sure, and I need to ask my family this, but I'm pretty sure that they called and complained <laughs> about the first one. And the second one came, Mr. Kidd, um, and before he could even really get out what I thought was going to be his vision for me, I just blurted out to him. I told him, I said, I want to go to college. And there was a short pause from him, and he said, okay, you know, we can do that. And what he did for me at that point was to not set out his vision, but to tell me and give me really a pathway for me to get to college. And the first thing that he suggested was that I go to the Rehabilitation Center for the Blind and Vision Impaired in Richmond, Virginia. Uh, That Rehabilitation Center had a campus where you actually stayed for weeks or months or however long it took for you to acquire, you know, the the skills that you needed to do whatever you were there for. Some folks were there to work, you know, some people were there like me to go to college and that they would assess me for what type of equipment I might need and what other skills I might need. And within maybe a month or two after that, uh, my aunt and uncle took me to Richmond and to the rehabilitation center. And it was really one of the best things and, and one of the best experiences I've ever had in my life, uh, really for two reasons. The first was, again, somewhat unexpected, and that was just the fact that I was able to be around other people who were blind and vision impaired. That was amazing to me. I, again, I, I'd never been around uh, blind people before. And to see all of them, just to see how different they were, that they had different dreams and, and hopes and, and fears and, and accomplishments as well. I mean, we had people there that were small business owners and that were there to learn additional skills to help with their business. And some were there to learn a vocation. Um, others there were there just to, to learn some more daily living skills or O&M skills. And to be able to talk to them and hear about how they went about their daily lives and and what their hopes and dreams were really just brought me full uh, circle um, and made me realize that, that I could, I could do, I could do this. Um, And then the other aspect of it, of course, that, that I was really there for was for instruction was for teaching and assessment. And there were, you know, a a myriad of courses that you could take, but the two that really had an impact on me was, was Braille, learning Braille, and for the first time, using a computer with a screen reader. Uh, My Braille teacher was Fred, and, and Fred was also blind, and he became kind of a mentor of mine, and he had, he had been teaching Braille by that time for decades, and and our initial, our initial uh, meeting was what well, didn't go as well as I, I think uh, he had wanted or I had wanted, because here's this uh, somewhat 
smart aleck 19 year old coming in there at that time and after a couple of sessions with with fred i kind of felt he was going a little slow and i mentioned that to fred <laughs> and fred very calmly but forcefully said you know jeff i've been teaching this class for 20 years just trust me i know what i'm doing and i did and uh we became really good friends and he gave me a very high compliment towards the end of the class and and uh, he had me reading a manual to him. And manuals are, are very difficult, or at least they were very difficult for me at the time to read. And Fred said, look at you, you know, you can read, you can read a manual. Look, look how far you've come. And I could just tell he was very proud. And um, that, that just really filled me up and, and really set me up for, for the future. And then there was uh, Sandy. Sandy was uh, the person who introduced me to screen readers and uh, using those on computers. And Sadie was just great. She was, she was always so positive and, and really she and Fred, I, I consider them really next level teachers. They, they did more than just teach, you know, they, they wanted to set me up for success and they really did that. They did everything they could to make sure I was ready. I was ready not only to leave uh, the rehabilitation center, but also to face life and, and to go on to college. And, uh, of course, while I was there as well, they assessed me for the equipment I would need for college. And I also took, uh, orientation and mobility with a cane and the cane. And I just did not always see high to eye. Um, I, it, I wanted to, it wanted to go straight down the sidewalk, but I wanted to bounce off each side back and forth, back and forth all the way down the sidewalk. And my O&M instructor, Jim, uh, and I had a conversation about it, and we soon came to the conclusion that perhaps a guide dog would be in order, and and that's what I did shortly after I left the center. Um, and we're now in the summer of, of 87, and and I'm sorry, in the summer of 88, I ended up going to CNI. I got a I got a guide dog, and and really everything was was really coming together for me to go to college in the fall. Um, I had applied earlier that year. And even went and spoke to the dean of admissions uh, at a university close to me, uh, Radford University. I, I later transferred to the University of Virginia and graduated there. But I started out at Radford University and um, had quite a good conversation with the admission dean of admissions at that time. I think uh, initially his thought was that maybe I should try a community college first, but that's that's not what I was my internal voice was telling me, and I, I certainly told him that I didn't feel that was the path for me, that I, I knew that I could do uh, do the work at Radford University if I was just given the chance. And, um, you know, he he listened to me and, and I was admitted. So that was uh, that was kind of my first victory, I think, in, in terms of using my voice and, and, and learning who I wanted to be and what I wanted to do and making sure I conveyed that, that I wasn't silenced uh, by other people's vision for me. And so the summer went along and everything looked great. I was in school. I was going to be in school in August. I had my dog. Everything was wonderful. And about two weeks before school started, um, it wasn't. <laughs> my Counselor at that time, rehabilitation counselor, called me 
and said, Jeff, um, there's a problem. And whenever you hear a problem, this is my own commentary. Whenever you hear a problem, that there's a problem from someone who works, works for the government, that usually means that there's been some bureaucratic snafu. And the snafu that took place here was that my equipment was not going to be ready for me when I got to school. It was going to be several more weeks. So there wasn't going to be a four-track recorder for me to listen to my textbooks that were being recorded by Recording for the Blind and Dyslexic, which is now Learning Ally. Um, I wasn't going to be able to use that to take my classrooms. Uh, I wasn't uh, going to get that computer with a screen reader on it, and I wasn't going to get my Perkins Braille uh, either. Braille or either. So, you know, that was, was something of a shock, but I think this is something that we don't as a community give ourselves credit for, that we're, we're great problem solvers, right? We know that when we see something that is difficult and usually requires sight, we've got all kinds of tools for how to solve that, you know? And we go through that list. How can we get this problem solved? Go through the list of our tools. And I started to think about that. How was I going to do this? You know, because right at that point, I didn't have too many options uh, available to just someone who was blind. So, you know, I went and got a tape recorder, uh, went and bought that for myself, for my for my classes. And uh, the one thing my rehabilitation counselor said that they did have was a slate and stylus and plenty of Braille paper for me. So I took him up on that. And for the classes that required me to hand in uh, any papers during class, what I would do is I would uh, Braille those out. And then I elicited help from those folks in my dorm who were just fantastic. The students were always willing to help. And I would go to them, sit down, read out what I had brailled and they would type it in for me so I could hand it in into class. And then my uncle who was working um, at a place that sold copiers and, and I assume also typewriters because he brought me an electric typewriter to use. And unfortunately it didn't have any uh, screen reading capability. Uh, it didn't have exactly a, a backspace and a delete to, to take care of all those mistakes, but it get, did give me an opportunity to, type in my own papers. So I still was using that slate and stylus, still uh, using that to write it down. And then I would type it out as, as, as quickly as I could, but go slow enough that I wasn't making too many mistakes. Um, but, you know, that's, I, I think that was my first lesson was just to be, to be a problem solver and how important that was uh, for me and for my success. Um, and several weeks later, my equipment did arrive, and, and that just changed everything for me. It made everything so much easier. Um, one thing that was not very easy initially was going into a classroom um, with the different professors that I had. Um, the very first professor, uh, this was an English writing class. The second time that we had class, we met for class, he came up to me and he said, um, he said, Jeff, um, um, I don't, I don't see how you're going to make it through my class. And, you know, there were a couple ways I could have gone with that. I, I could have, I could have escalated the situation. Uh, 
or I could have elevated the conversation at that point. You know, I could have escalated it by arguing with him and, and telling him who did he think he was, telling me what I could and could not do. I mean, he didn't know me. The only thing he knew about me was that I was blind. And, and that, that, did not, that did not determine whether or not I was going to be successful in his class. But I, I didn't think that was going to be a very good tactic because all that was going to do was start an argument. So what I said instead was, you know, I appreciate your honesty. I do, but I'm going to do whatever it takes to to make it through your class and to pass it. What was he going to say to that? All he could say was, okay. And he he said it in in kind of a, a hesitant, questioning way, but it I think it at least let him know that I wasn't going to be cowered by, by what he thought. And, you know, I did make it through his class. And at the end of the semester, he came up to me. Uh, I, I'll never forget this. You know, I was sitting at my desk and he handed me a piece of paper and he said, Jeff, you know, when, when you get a chance, would you, you know, let, you know, have someone read this to you? And I said, okay. I said, what, what exactly is it? He said, he, he just, Paul's for Satan. He said, well, it's an application for our honors program here at the university. I think you'd be a good candidate for it. Wow. What a turnaround. <laughs> what a turnaround uh, during the semester. Um, and, you know, I, I wonder, not just that professor, but from my, all of my professors who, of course, said I was probably the first person that had ever been in their class that was blind. And I wonder what they thought. And I wonder, you know, if they told the story to, uh, of the first blind person they'd had in their class to others and how that affected the people they told and how that affected them and how they uh, treated other people who were visually impaired that came behind me. Um, and I hope just, just maybe just a little that I helped to, to kind of blaze that, that pathway for them. And, and I'm sure all of you out there, tonight have a, have a similar story of, of what you did for the first time and how you had an impact on those folks, um, positive, uh, coming behind you. Um, but it also taught me something else, uh, just from a professor questioning whether or not I was going to make it through the course. It, it taught me to be proactive. It taught me to be a better advocate for myself. One thing that I had failed to do at the beginning of the semester is contact my professors and let them know that, hey, there's someone blind in your class. And how am I going to be successful? What what are you you know, what are the things that you're going to ask that we do in our class and and maybe talk it through with them to make sure that I had in place a plan? for how I was going to take tests, how I was going to do papers, um, how I was going to participate in class as well. And so immediately the next day, you know, I started contacting my professors and set up times to speak with them. Um, I think it's, I think it's very important to be proactive in that situation. Um, And I was very surprised at how supportive they were. Um, One of the classes that I was particularly concerned about was my biology class, which had a lab uh, that met once a week. How was I going to do that? How was I going to record uh, uh, the react? You know what was happening in, in the beaker, 
what was what was happening there. Uh, that was something that was very important. And my professor, Dr. Gorley, um, that great man, he, you know, I talked it over with him and and you know, I also went into these meetings remembering that I'm the expert on my on my disability. You know, my professor isn't the expert. No one else is. I'm the expert on my disability, but I also went in there with an open mind. And and Dr. Gorley went into the meeting with an open mind as well. And he said, you know what, Jeff? I think the best solution to that is if you and I could meet separately after class. And we'll do the experiments together. And we'll talk about it. And that was a perfect fit for me. I, I had no idea that was even an option for me. And um, he did that for me. We met every week. And I, I won't tell you guys what uh, animal he ended up having me dissect, but uh, it was much bigger than a pig that most of us think of uh, dissecting in school. But he was there every step of the way, and it was it was phenomenal um, what he did for me. And you know, that was, that was really, uh, five my, minutes, please. Five minute warning. Oh, thank you. And so, um, you know, that was really a recipe for success for me, uh, was to be proactive, to be a problem solver, to, uh, make sure that, that I was advocating for myself and really setting myself up for success. And I ended up uh, finishing college, which was which was great in four years. And I got a full scholarship to law school. And I really continued that same recipe through law school as well. And it worked for me. It really set me up for success. And I ended up getting a job down here in, in Atlanta, Georgia in 1995. With, initially with a law firm, Austin and Bird. And then transferred over to the attorney general's office and had a really a, a fantastic opportunity to, to help people and to represent uh, state agencies in various cases. And I think the, the, the case that really stood out to me was a case that involved a young lady. Uh, and I'll, I'll just say her first name, Jessica. Uh, Jessica had been in a car accident and was left paralyzed and used a wheelchair for mobility. And Jessica, Jessica had a, had a dream, you know, her voice was telling her that she needed to go to college. That that was what she wanted to do, that she wanted to be independent. She wanted to live on her own. And so she went to um, a house that she wanted to rent, talk to the landlord about maybe some, making some reasonable modifications to the house. And the landlord told her no um, and told her that maybe she should be, you know, maybe she'd be better off with people like herself. You know, she was trying to silence Jessica, silence her voice that was telling her that, that she wanted to be independent. And thankfully Jessica was, was courageous. You know, she wanted to be heard and she filed a complaint with the state agency. That complaint ended up landing on my desk and you know, we filed a lawsuit against the landlord. And even though, you know, it, it took some time and Jessica had already moved on, she'd already gone, she was going to college, already found another place to live. Uh, the one good thing about the lawsuit and what we really wanted more out of it in, than anything was that Jessica's voice was heard. You know, and it was. So as 
as I kind of sum up here and get kind of down to my final point, um, I think it's important for everyone out there tonight to, to really think about those three phrases I mentioned earlier. I am me, my voice is me, my voice has something to say. And to really think about that, think about what you want to say. Think about what you have to say and don't be silenced out there. Um, set yourself up for success because if by finding your voice um, and, and to borrow a little bit from the theme of the convention here tonight, you know, by finding your voice, you will bridge the gap between your current reality and your potential. I really believe that. And I hope that all of you think about that very much as you continue through tonight and tomorrow. Have a great convention, everyone, and thank you for having me here tonight. Thank you so much, Jeff, for that inspiring talk. I really enjoyed it, and I know the folks out there did too. We really appreciate you coming on and sharing your story with us. If we could have Miss Judy Presley move to the microphone, you are up next with State Awards, and I believe uh, you have your granddaughter with you. If you want to introduce her when her time comes, that'll be great. Okay, Cecily, can you hear me? I can hear you. Oh, good. Uh, I'm so excited about these awards. We've got three awards to be presented tonight, and uh, they're very deserving people that have gotten these awards. And my granddaughter, Macy Wilkes, has been kind enough to volunteer to do the reading for me. And first of all, she will read the criteria for the award, and then she will read the nomination letter. And if you haven't figured out who the recipient is by the time she gets through with the letter, then I will announce the um, winner of the, or the recipient of the award. So now I'm going to turn it over to my granddaughter, Macy Wilkes. All right. Hi, everyone. So the first award that we have tonight is the Rhonda Walker Award. And the criteria for the Rhonda Walker Award is suggested by Rhonda's sister, Helen Wachowski. The recipient can be a blind or sighted individual. Services rendered must be on non-paying status. Services may be any endeavor in the field of teaching, service, and betterment of life for the blind. The recipient must provide public awareness through speaking, seminars, and or demonstration. There must be involvement of the educational field or training of Braille. The recipient must push any innovation in involving blindness or blind people. And then for the nomination, um, I would like to, this one is from Judy Presley. I would like to nominate Jeremy Adams for the Rondo Walker Award for 2020. Jeremy taught himself to read Braille, and this is amazing to me because it took me many months to learn Braille, even with an instructor. He was a computer major in college, and he said Braille was similar to the computer code. Jeremy has two young daughters, Tiffany, who is eight, and Elizabeth, who is four. He began going to to Tiffany's school and reading to her class from Braille children's book. This led to visiting other classes and giving Braille demonstrations. This would certainly qualify him for the endeavor of teach in teaching Braille by enlightening sighted children about the Braille system of reading. This also qualifies him for meeting the criteria of public awareness for Braille. I hope that 
you will give serious consideration to Jeremy for the Rondo Walker Award. Kind regards, Judy Presley. And the recipient is Jeremy Adams. And I would hope that Jeremy would be on here tonight, but I have a feeling that he probably is not. So uh, we will go on to the next award. All right. This next award is the June Willis Award. And the criteria is that the recipient of this award shall be known to GCB members through attendance at GCB state activities and through his or her willing assistance and service to the blind and visually impaired. And this is the nomination. It is with great honor that I recommend this recipient for the June Willis Guiding Eyes Award. His willingness to assist with any task thrown at her has been astounding. No tour we have asked her to help with was even daunt has ever daunted her. I met her through GCB somewhere around 15 years ago. At the time, she was a bright, intelligent, and helpful 15-year-old. The tasks have been as varied as serving food and occasionally cooking it, finance committee, and whatever needs to be accomplished at GCB conventions. Over years, I've known her to miss very few GCB board mem- meetings. No one, no one person sticks out in my mind has ever been more consistently able to handle a need. She is a fabulous asset to this organization, and I think that it is time she is recognized. Sincerely, sincerely, Jerry Tony. And the recipient is Danielle Joy McIntyre. And DJ, if you're on here, um, would you like to say a few words? I am here. (laughs) Sorry, guys. I'm tearing up. Um, Thank you, Jerry, for nominating me. Um, It's a privilege to be a part of this community. As Michelle and I were just talking about it yesterday, um, blind people is where I'm comfortable. I know that sounds weird because I have eyes and I can see. Um, But this is home. So thank you so much for this. That's wonderful. and, And congratulations, Danielle. You certainly deserve it. All right. We have one more. All right. And this next one is the Walter R. McDonald Award. And the criteria for this award is that the recipient shall, or, or is that the award shall be presented to an outstanding visually impaired individual who has, through his or her leadership service, contributed significantly to the betterment of the blind and visually impaired community and who has demonstrated by deeds and achievements through his or her dedication to the principles indecent to blindness espoused and practiced by the late Walter R. McDonald. The recipient may or may not be a member of the Georgia Council of the Blind. And then the nomination letter... This nominee is a gentleman who approaches life's challenges with passion and perseverance. He demonstrates integrity as he strives to give each individual the opportunity to express their views and opinions in a non-threatening manner. I witnessed his strong leadership skills firsthand over many years we have worked together in the Georgia Coalition of Blindness. He was often requested to share his vocational strategies on the 
Coalition's Employment Committee as he is a massage therapist. His business is known as an inversion, which uses massages as part of the holistic approach to healthy living. He never failed to capture his coalition audience as he shared his positive career story filled with hope and success. And the recipient is Roderick Parker. And Roderick, uh, would you happen to be on tonight? And if so, would you like to say a, a few words? And we'll give him a second to unmute if he is there. And I don't hear anything. So I'm just going to congratulate you, Roderick. You are much, much deserving for this award. And we, are, we appreciate everything you've done for GCB. And so that is the uh, conclusion of our awards for uh, GCB. Thank you so much, Judy, for your hard work chairing the awards committee and pulling all that together. And thank you, Macy, for your volunteer work uh, helping out Miss Judy there. Sharon Nichols, if you would unmute, you are up next with awards from the Northwest chapter. Hello, my name is Sharon Nichols. And I have been asked to present the awards for the Northwest chapter. Um, uh, there are two people that are, have been very, uh, have given a, a whole lot in our chapter. And um, one of them is Bethany McKenzie. She is to receive the Loving Cup Reward. She's, she just has done an amazing job to help us to, be able to do things and go places and and she's just always there for whatever we need and the other one for the certificate is um ron burgess and he's been in the chapter a long time and has really worked hard to uh, just be there and take the take up the slack where other people can't or just give information and help do a lot of things and he was our president for a long time i think so that's the two people that uh, have awards in our chapter. That's wonderful, Miss Sharon. I appreciate that. Are either of those recipients on the call tonight? If you are, you may raise your hand and our wonderful host, Lynn, will unmute you. I don't believe I saw either of those names, but just in case. All right. If Tanya Clayton would make her way to the microphone, president of Rome, to give out the awards from the Rome chapter. <clears throat> Go ahead, Tanya. You're unmuted. Okay. Um, our recipient for the president award is Debbie Young. She's helped us by uh, driving us to the different state affiliate conventions and also attended the ACB conventions by attending with helping with sighted guide doing convention registration um, doing snacks and also helping with tours she also has been volunteering with the Lions Club with in 2018 2019 of our Lions uh, winter camp we've had in the Floyd County State Park in Somerville. She helped with 
preparing meals, assisting with chores, sighted guide, doing activities, and any other things that we thought she could help us with. She is recently the current member of the Rome Chapter Floyd County Chapter, Georgia Chapter of the Blind, and we do appreciate her with all the work that she has done for us. Thank you, Tanya. Miss Debbie, I see you're on the call. If you would like to say a few words, please raise your hand uh, so that the host can recognize you. All right, you may unmute yourself now. Okay, I think I did it. Okay. You did, yes. Yay, okay. Well, I want to appreciate that. I, I'm really shocked uh, about getting an award, and I love my AGC family and everybody that, you know, is, oh, I, I don't know what even want to say. You know what I mean? I am so, um, so, <laughs> I don't know, but I am proud to get the award. I am, and I've always go out of my way, and I always will. Anytime they need anything, I'm here for them. And uh, I love doing the work for them and doing whatever I can do for them. And like I say, I always be here for them. So if anybody needs anything, um, just call me and I'll, I'll help you out as much as I can. And thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you, That's great. Thank you so much. All right. If we could have Phil Jones make his way to the microphone, he will be giving out the awards for the East Georgia chapter. And you all heard the MC stylings of Marge and Phil throughout the afternoon today. We look forward to hearing them more tomorrow. And Phil, take it away. Okay. Uh, I'm going to explain something here that I uh, wanted to do be, uh, for the, this reason. Uh, even though I was elected uh, president of our chapter last month, I felt that the presentation of the award should be made by our immediate past president, Patricia Ganger, because when the awards were called for, she made the selection for the certificate of appreciation. And of course, we voted in the Loving Cup during that time, too. So, Patricia, if you are there, could you make your way to the microphone and do your presentation, please? I was looking at the names, and I don't believe she's with us tonight, Phil. Okay, well, that's uh, no problem at all, because I will take care of that. And uh, the Loving Cup Award goes to, and I hope I'm pronouncing this name correctly, Tiffany Montalvo. And um, she's, she's been very uh, intriguing, uh, really, really good uh, with our chapter. And uh, she put together a great bunch of photos uh, for the White Cane celebration that we had last month. Uh, we wanted, of course, to have a White Cane Day rally the way we did last year. But, of course, due to the coronavirus situation, we haven't been able to meet. But uh, we made it was made possible by Tiffany and uh, with uh, help also from Cecily and uh, so it was really great to have that. So, Tiffany, congratulations wherever you are. If you happen to be on, would you like to say something? 
If you would raise your hand, there you go, so that the host can unmute you. All right, you can go ahead and unmute. Hi, um, I just want to say thank you so much. I don't really need an award for this. I really enjoy being a part of the group. It hasn't been that long, but I've enjoyed meeting you guys and being a part of the East Georgia chapter, and I can't wait to, to keep going on in the future with you guys. So thank you so much. Thanks, Congratulations Tiffany. Congratulations again there, Tiffany. We appreciate your work. Also, we do have a certificate of appreciation, and I don't need to tell you too much about this individual because you know what she does. I mean, this person has just been, ever since she joined the chapter, about eight years ago, I guess it was, she has really fallen into what we do. She has worked hard all these years, and and she's worked so hard at the, at the state level as well, and she's uh, even a good part of the national level, and uh, somebody who has just really become a true friend of mine over the years, too, and... Uh, we, we all just love her to death in the East Georgia chapter, and others who really know her as we do love her to death, too. This certificate of appreciation goes to Cecily Nipper, Jr. Thank you so much, Phil. I really appreciate that. Uh, when I first joined eight years ago, Phil, you were the president, and you asked me at that first meeting would I like to join and you said you were going to put me to work. And the, the first thing I did was start making cakes for the hospitality committee. And it's just been a fun ride. I appreciate you. And I appreciate the chapter so much. Congratulations again. Thank you. All right. Next, we move into the president's message. And Alice, I'll let you decide if you want to give out your awards first or share your president's message first. That is up to you. The next two segments are all yours. Well, no, actually, it's just the one because I'm not going to do any more reporting till the business meeting tomorrow. So I'm here tonight to present what we call the President's Diamond Award. And it's an um, awards we kind of started a few years back where the president uh, wanted to recognize people um, who were members of GCB or people who were involved in volunteering in GCB to go that extra mile to, to help us um, make the organization run smooth. And so tonight I'm going to present two awards. The first, President's Diamond Award, being presented by GCB, is going to go to Patty Smith. And the plaque basically says, in recognition of your outstanding volunteer work to assist our treasurer in doing paperwork and helping to do the paperwork involved with conference and convention and helping to transport members to board meetings when we do meet in person and helping out even at state conventions to make sure things run smoothly. We would like to present you with this award and thank you for your service. And I believe Patty is here. So whoever, um, if Patty, if you could raise your hand and if you feel like saying a few words, feel free.
Is there is there a hand raised at all? Do we know, Lynn? No, I'm sorry, Alice. I don't see her hand raised at all. Okay, maybe then something came up and she couldn't make it in. Our next award, um, again, is going to um, one of our members. And this person um, is being recognized for outstanding leadership. And this is going to tell you who it is. In overseeing our youth awareness program, She's been involved in helping to put together our conferences for the last couple of years, and this year was no easy task. And just being involved at board meetings to help out where she can, doing whatever we ask of her. And it's my privilege to thank you, Cecily, for your outstanding service. We appreciate you very much. Thank you, Alice. That's very unexpected, but appreciated. It has been a privilege working with you all at GCB on the state level, and I look forward to many more years in GCB, I hope, working alongside you all, your wonderful folks. Well, we love you, and we look forward to watching your leadership grow. So that's going to do it for me tonight. So whatever comes up next is up to you, Phil and Marge, I guess. Except I would just like to say one other thing real quick, and that's I really enjoyed Jeff's speech. And and I just wanted to say, just a second, Barsha, are you telling me Patty's there? Yes, I'm I'm sorry. I, did, I forgot I was unmuted. Patty is here. She's on my Okay, phone. well, good. Let's hear from Patty then. Well, this was a very exciting award, and I appreciate it so much. And uh, I've just had a lot of fun. Uh, Marsha is brilliant, and all the people that I have been around and, you know, transporting or being in the meetings or whatever, I've really enjoyed, and uh, I appreciate it. Y'all are very wonderful folks and are very amazing, and thank you so much. Thank you, Patty. We appreciate all you do to help us out. And just before I go, though, I did want to say that I wanted to say that I was really impressed by um, Jeff's talk and the thing that stuck out in my mind through his whole conversation was it wasn't only about his voice but what stuck with me was his vision and the fact that he didn't let anybody else push on their vision but stuck by and did his vision and I, I just think that was very a very good lesson for all of us to keep in mind so thank you and thank you uh, Phil and Marge for what you've done tonight. Thank you, Jamaica, for door prices. And Cecily, thank you for emceeing. All right. And we do have several more door prizes coming up. Yes, we do. In fact, Before I, think, we do I that, believe we have three of them. That's and, right. Um, shall we just go ahead and uh, ask the door prize people to be ready now? They're, are they ready? Yes, if you're ready, let's go ahead and do one now. And then I'd like to give you a little intro of what to expect tomorrow. Okay, cool. And we'll do this final two after that, right? Sure. All right. Okay. Uh, yes, yeah, so I I am ready, but I'm not sure my uh my helper is ready. I'm but... I'm right here, Jamaica. I'm ready. Okay. I'm paying attention and ready to go. So the uh, next door prize that we have to give away was donated by Guide Dog Foundation. 
and they have given us a branded tote bag and a fleece blanket. So go ahead and draw us out a number to see who wins those prizes. Number 30. Number 30. Number 30 on our list is Donna Brown. Congratulations, Donna. All right, wonderful. From out of state there, that's great. Yeah. Well, be sure to tune in. First of all, for those who registered, who have the link to the GCB Zoom room, our very own Jamaica Miller, door prize lady, famous for her community call involvement, will be facilitating a nightcap at 9.30 tonight for us to talk about what a great time we've had today. And do come and join us for that. Then in the morning, back on this link and live on ACB Radio Special will be our exhibitor showcase beginning at 9 a.m. And you can go to our website, georgiacounciloftheblind.com slash convention to get a list of those exhibitors that we'll be presenting tomorrow. And you've heard some of their names already tonight because they donated door prizes. We'll have more door prizes and, and exhibitors up for us in the morning. Following that will be the business meeting where we will hear reports and our president will open it up to hear from you, the membership, about what you'd like the board to address in 2021. Later on in the afternoon, there will be two different sessions for you to choose from during the early afternoon after lunch. One will be a youth session talking about the transition from high school to what comes next for blind and visually impaired students. That one will be streamed on the GCB Zoom account. will be education opportunities for seniors. That's 62 and over. There will be a chance for you to learn about free or low-cost education opportunities for you. That's not the end of what we have to offer. The afternoon goes on with our special interest affiliate showcase and our trivia. So with that, I will turn it over to Phil to do the last two door prizes. Okay. I'm going to give a second for the door prize people to get ready. Um, I want to mention uh, some people behind the scenes here that we don't uh, hear hear from on the air. It's Steve Longmire and also our uh, streamer uh, from ACB Radio and Lynn Coates, who has been doing a marvelous job at hosting this evening. You've all done very well, and we thank you so much. And uh, the behind-the-scenes people are just as important as the on-the-air people, and uh, we're all important. Everyone working together as a team to make all this happen. It's why we do what we do in ACB, and I think it really symbolizes what ACB is all about, the hard work, the dedication, the teamwork, and it's all bound together by a love for ACB and a love for each other in the organization. So congratulations for having a a great first day, and I'm looking forward to the nightcap this evening to uh, hear what people have to say about what's going on and what has uh, been going on this afternoon and evening. So now I'm going to turn it over 
once again to our doors prize people for those final two door prizes of the night. But take heart if you didn't win tonight. I didn't win tonight. I was hoping I would. Maybe I will. There are plenty more coming tomorrow. So I'm going to turn it over right now to the door prize folks. Okay. Thank you, Phil. Maybe you'll win one of these. We've got two more that people are very excited about. The next one is a $20 Starbucks gift card. And I know I heard people talking the other night at the, uh, at the dress rehearsal that they really would like to win this one. So do you have a, a number drawn for us, Jamaica? Yes. And it is number 14. Number 14, that is Miss Betsy Grenovich. So, Betsy, congratulations. You're going to be drinking some coffee or some tea from Starbucks. Cappuccino. Yeah, that's right. Okay. And uh, this last one, I know Jamaica is very excited about. Do you want to tell us what this last one is, Jamaica? No, I'm going to let you do it, please. Okay. All right. Jamaica, and I know I know. I heard Marge mention this earlier. That's so right. So now we have, this one's exciting. GARS, the Georgia Radio Reading Service, has donated a 7-inch Amazon Kindle Fire to go to one lucky winner. So let's have a number. Jamaica, did you draw us one out of the bowl? Yes, it's number 23. Number 23 is Mike Hall. Congratulations to Mike. You've got an Amazon Kindle Fire coming your way. Very exciting. Okay. All right, that's all well, that the is, prizes. That's the prizes. And uh, this wraps up the first session of the 2020 GCB virtual convention and Marge uh, you want to just close this out with a few words well I, sh- I sure will Phil thanks to, to everyone for being with us this evening and you know it, it takes a village to put on a virtual convention and here we are the Georgia Council of the Blind Village with uh, help from our villagers at the national level so thanks you all and uh, join us tomorrow at 9 a.m. Good night, everybody.